<laughs> Hello, boils and ghouls. This is John Kassir, the voice of The Crypt Keeper. And you're listening to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, hosted by Dion and Blake. <laughs> At St. Bernard Academy, four outsiders are about to make all their wishes come true. With a vengeance. Magic. <laughs> we can make things happen. You're a witch. Surprise. <laughs> the craft. Girls, watch out for those weirdos. We are the weirdos, mister. Rated R at Theaters Friday. Say a word. <laughs> Never mind that noise you heard. It's just a beast under your bed. In your closet, in your head. We're here. Exit light. Enter night. Take my hand. This is Shatner's new thing, off to Never Neverland. Or uh, Christopher Walken should do one of those. Exit light. Enter. Well, I mean, I didn't want to get off on a tangent nice. right away, but <laughs> I know. since you brought up Shatner, my big pet peeve about... Welcome to Saturday Night <laughs> Movie Sleepovers. I'm Dion Baya. And I'm Jay Blake. Now back to the very special Behind the uh, Bike Shop episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I don't want to get too far down tangent, but I think the misnomer, the what people don't understand about the William Shatner thing well, in, terms of, in terms of... His music, his quote unquote music career. Yeah. Is that, you know, it's become obviously a joke and kind of a, you know, a, 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 I'm going to say a parody, but it's not a parody of anything. It's a parody of him, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Is that that first album from the 60s, Transformed Man or something like that? Yeah. It was a concept album. Yeah. Which was that he was relating pop music of the day to classic poetry. Yeah. And how the lyrics of things like Mr. Tambourine Man and when I was 17 it was all what were the po- were, was not the, modern the poetry, poetry of, t- of the day. Yeah. And so that album if I recall correctly even has him doing like sonnets and things from Shakespeare. Yeah. And then it's all this it's this conceptual album of him as as an as an actor performing poetry. Yeah. And so it was never meant to be that he was going to sing these songs. And Leonard Nimoy put a straight pop album too out. Yeah, right? Shatner, I mean, Nimoy did, like, he actually sang. Yeah. But this idea of Shatner talking songs, that's where it comes from. Yeah. That it was a very definite, very uh, uh, specific concept. Yeah. And then it became, people thought it was funny, and then... I don't try to do anything for a box. I know. <laughs> well, didn't he invite? He invent his own language as well. Or he had some. Remember that whole poet. Well, he? no. Well, there was a movie called The Incubus where it was the first film shot entirely in. We just brought this up. 
um, in uh, uh, Esperanto. Yeah, Esperanto. Which I mean, he didn't invent that language. Okay, I, I had this a was, that of... was that was like a hippie thingy, like a beautiful idea that if we all learned Esperanto, yeah, all around the world, that was a universal language that we could all communicate. We'd all be one yeah. community, and so. Somebody's like, yeah, well, Esperanto is going to be the new hot thing. It will be the first movie to be entirely in, entirely in Esperanto. And they made this movie, and then nobody learned Esperanto. <laughs> you could file that next to the- At least I believe that's what the language is called. What's the uh, Jack Nicholson written movie with the monkeys in it? Oh, so, Head. Yeah. yeah, Head. Yeah, you can file that next to Head, that weird <laughs> odd, before Nicholson was famous, or he was still a, a B actor. Uh, yeah, Sh- I mean, that Shatner album that came out in 2011, I absolutely loved. The, the one that was all star-related, and it had, like, you know, Major Tom on it, or Space Oddity, and it yeah, had all yeah. kinds of, you know. And even, I think, in the late 70s, when he was doing, like, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, I feel like it was kind of still serious, you know, when he's doing those shows, where he's oh, standing yeah, in like a Rocket suit. Man. Yeah, and he's and he's and they've got, like, the double exposure, and he's smoking. I feel like and you could tell him he might even smoke. He's just doing it for effect. <laughs> you know, and then I think in My the My point 80s, is only, it yeah. was... Terrible. There was an idea for it. I mean, it, whether it worked or not, obviously it kind of didn't, but I just feel like it's important to, for people to realize that there was a reason for it. He it wasn't, wasn't just, just this weird this weird interpretation of this is how he sings music. Yeah, like Buckwheat <laughs> sings, uh, you know. <laughs> Hello, is it me? He sings, oh. <laughs> For way, oh, whoa. what's his name? Wilford, um, Elmer <laughs> Fudd. The wab, kill the wabbit. Um, so anyway. Anyway. If, then, sorry. Since you brought it up. Since I brought up Metallica. We took a left Because I said Walken should do an album similar to that. Um, but yeah. The synapse is firing weird, weird ways when we're together. Well, it's a late night, you know. And it's almost like Blake and I, when we learn a martial art, we know everything so much about each other, and when you forget everything. And then it just comes in a fluid motion when you need it. You grab it <laughs> and you throw. That, if that analogy makes any sense to anybody. Yeah. So um, let's see. It's another Saturday night. We've, we've, we've found ourselves together. <laughs> yeah, and it's super late. Super late. So we can't waste too much time no. on things like William Shatner. And Christopher Walken. Um, we're uh, back again for another exciting episode. We, we, were, we were in the 1950s last week with a little Hitchcock. Uh, which kind of has a jumping... It's It'll be fun to, like, each podcast, we should dare ourselves to try to make a tenuous connection from the last episode. So, like, this week's, uh, you know, there's a connection because of the Shadow of a Doubt mm-hmm. Hitchcock movie. Yeah. So, that's pretty it's easy. It's all connected. It's all connected, you know? So, and then, like... I, mean, I feel like we kind of do that anyway. <laughs> I know. It's not, yeah. I feel like this whole year we've connected stuff through, like, Cliffhanger to Iger Sanction to um, Pee Wee, you know? I mean, we made a we made a connection from Pee Wee to like Hitchcock last week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we're back again, and we're here to to, to cover a classic that is now turning twenty three. A, mo- a modern classic, or is it not even modern anymore? I uh, I I guess you could technically say it's not modern to anymore. Us, it feels like it's modern. Yeah. But that's like people in 1999 covering a nineteen seventy six movie saying, "Is it modern?" And you're like, oh, I don't know. True, true. It's crazy. Uh, we're doing um, Scream from 1996. Uh, like I said, 23. Uh, and um, pretty big one within the, the genre. <laughs> the genre. Well, one of the reasons why I, I've been kind of suggesting that we do this one is 
one, it's just before we meet, but also uh, I've noticed through communicating with other film fans and especially other horror fans on social media uh, that for people in their 20s now, Especially, I'm going to say girls, but I, I don't know. Maybe it's it's universal. This movie was very much a gateway movie for, I think, a younger generation uh, to get into horror as a genre. I definitely agree that I know uh, it is a girls movie, although it's not like a a girls only movie. Yeah. It has uh, like a big female yeah, fan base. It has a huge female fan base for... I guess debatable reasons. If you, I mean, I guess would it be the same reason? Would like I know what you did last summer still have that same fan base because it's kind of still on that genre, urban legend, or maybe because of the rise of Neff Campbell in the in the nineties. Yeah, 90s. I don't know, but a lot of these people are people that like weren't even born when this movie came out, or yeah. were toddlers. You know yeah, what I mean, but I think it just it was you know modern enough. You know, it still looks good. It holds up in that way. You know, sometimes when you watch an older, <clears throat> lower budget horror movie, there's it's there's a datedness to it. Yeah. In terms of the film stock or the production values, uh, that maybe can you know creates a little bit of a barrier for some younger viewers uh, that are more used to the way things look now, more sleek with the digital video and stuff like that. You but, certainly probably get that prior to the '80s. Yeah. You know, now I think you're right. The technical. It holds up technically the prowess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The culturally like it's still stated. Look, it looks great, and yeah. it was a fairly big budget horror movie in yeah. comparison to something like even Nightmare on Elm Street, which was you know obviously a big West Craven classic, but you know a classic like looks great blessing. for what it is. <laughs> but it's it does there is a big gap in terms of budget and the sleekness of a movie like that. Yeah. So I think maybe that's part of it, and uh, I don't know. It was. I'm not quite sure other than that, other than that it was a huge movie at a time when horror was a little bit lacking. Like it kind of did rejuvenate the genre at a time that these people, these younger horror fans were growing up. So it was probably just like in the zeitgeist of, you know, it was probably getting a lot of cable play and stuff, just like a lot of the movies that we discovered growing up were. I think it was... Very big, because I mean, I saw it in the theaters. I mean, this was the era where I went to the theaters regularly. So it was certainly like people were talking about it. It sure. was that word but of mouth. Saying, but for someone who wasn't even born when this movie came out. Oh, then yeah. You know, <laughs> you know like there has to, something is making this be. Well, I had a couple sequels that yeah, probably, it's you true. know. I mean, it has had four sequels. And then it had a sequel that was kind of recent, what, 2011? And then there was a television show. Yeah, but I think that prior what? to that, probably like you're saying, yeah, that it probably was on cable and it was the people's, maybe it was the the people our age having kids yeah. who were, you know, showing this. This is, you know, people who are maybe casual horror fans or pretty uh, thorough horror, horror fans were showing this to their kids. Uh, and... Um, it coming out at Christmas time, I, I remember it, it it just having this slow like snowball effect, and then it being just like this big thing, you know, like everyone loved it, and um, and it, it was this statement because it's odd because for me certainly, like I think horror at the time, I'm sure for you too, that you know there were there were gen- great genre films, horror genre films still coming out, but I think the mainstream like what people say here they cite is that the mainstream slasher 
arc of those yeah. kind of films were kind of hit the wall with like Dr. Giggles and like so many repetitious, you know, they were kind of scraping the bottle, bottom of like the, you know, the pan at that point. Yeah, there's this, what I, there's a lot of what I feel are kind of misnomers or rewritten history when it comes mm. to this movie. And one of them is that horror was dead yeah. when this came out, which is kind of, which is what you're saying. People p- p- uh, paint it with a broad brush. It, in certain ways, it was probably from a box office standpoint. You know, things like A New Nightmare, Wes Craven's A New Nightmare, and In the Mouth of Madness, which are films that I like a lot that I think are very interesting. Not flawless. You know, as most of you, the listeners, know, and as Dion knows, In the Mouth of Madness is a very special film to me personally. Uh but they weren't they they weren't terribly successful in terms of financially. Yeah, we covered that on an episode as well. And so I feel like there's that. I mean But it wasn't like horror was dead in the water. It wasn't like you know how like in the late when is it the late thirties they stopped kind of self imposed. They stopped making horror for a couple of years. And when the war came out, not so yeah. much. And then there was a rejuvenation. I mean, horror was still being made. It just seems that I guess, and like you're saying, was good. Yeah, I know? think there was some pretty good. But you're right. Probably stuff I should have been able to cite right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. There was uh, a certain type of movie that we now consider the slasher genre had kind of run its course um, in terms of they had gotten goofy. Yeah. Uh, Unintentionally, at sometimes. And sometimes, and often, I think intentionally. Yeah. You know, there's only so much you can do with a with a franchise that's eight movies, nine movies deep. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and then to come out with something new around that time to compete with the sequels of franchises that are that deep a decade old or, yeah, or that, more or have so many installments they st- like new movies start to look a little bit like what's going on in part 7 or 8 when you know they become when a franchise becomes a little bit of a of a like a parody caricature yeah. or a parody of itself yeah you know i think as a fan and for someone that spends more time than the average movie lover thinking about the history of horror movies. Not the average horror fan, but the average just like general horror movie fan. For me, it seems that this kind of movie, this quote unquote meta style self-aware horror movie was like the inevitable next step in terms of when you have things like Freddy and Jason basically kind of parodying themselves by the late 80s and early 90s. And then you have movies like Wes Craven's A New Nightmare, which is a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which is very aware of the genre, just in a different way than Scream is. And then right on the heels of that, you have In the Mouth of Madness, which is very much an, like a self-aware horror story. Not parody, though. Yeah. Not, not done for laughs. Not done for laughs, but you know, it's those movies are about the horror genres, yeah. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, West, uh, New Nightmare being more about film, and and uh, In the Mouth of Madness being more about horror in general, from uh, attacking it from a more literary, like a position, phenomenon of it, you know, because yeah. that's about an author of a book, and New Nightmare is about 
Wes Craven and Freddy specifically. But you know, trying, very, that's very different from the other Freddy sequels. Oh yeah, yeah, and and, and it's, it's a one, step apart. And like it's almost. one of the reasons why I really like that movie. I don't think it's entirely successful with everything that it's trying to do, but I think it's a really interesting idea. This idea that. Uh, Throughout the history of storytelling, horror stories have been used to keep the demons, the darkness at bay. And by uh, and when they stop, that's when we have trouble. It's something that later becomes, I think, um, not directly, but certainly influences something like Cabin in the Woods. Okay, yeah. Which you know, people have really grabbed a hold yeah, of. Yeah, which is great. That's yeah. a hell of a lot of fun, that yeah. movie. But it's also this idea of darkness being held at bay and conventions I of- you're going to start going to Thriller there. Of heart- <laughs> Darkness across the land. Because he's doing- I'm doing hand motions. Yeah, so it looked like he was going to start doing the, the zombie- I'm talking with my hands as well, which <laughs> yeah. you can't see. But this idea of like evil, evil and darkness is held at bay through conventions of horror, of horror storytelling. So, in a way, a, a new nightmare and in the mouth of madness are really the beginning of this postmodern horror movie storytelling. It just doesn't do it in the same way that Scream does, and so Scream does it in a much more accessible, like fun way, I think, a- and is meta in a very different way. But a new nightmare is all about. Freddie being a character, you know, it's about Heather Loggenkamp and Robert England and Wes Craven directly. So to say that Scream is the first movie to be self-aware is a little bit of a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Whereas yeah. A New Nightmare is very, it's, it's just doing it in a more kind of, I don't want to say that, make it seem like I'm, I'm bashing Scream at all because I'm not, but it does it in a much different, more like imaginative, yeah. serious, thought-provoking way. It's weird coming to this movie because I haven't literally seen it probably since high school. I mean, yeah. I saw it in the theater, taped it, and then you know knew it pretty well, lines from it. Uh, and then probably when we got to college, um, the other ones blend in t- for me together. Yeah. And I don't think I saw the, the last one or saw the series. What, um, so I have a very, it's, it's, a, it's, it's such a, far removed interpretation of living through it back then and then coming back to it 23 years on. What year is Evil Dead 2? 89, 90? Evil Dead 2 is, I'm going to say 86. Eight, oh, Evil Dead 2 is 8. Because that almost... seven. I thought it was a little later on. What year's Army of Darkness? That is... That's the early 90s, but I, I'm always kind of confused as to when that comes out because that actually got held... For, yeah... Uh, because of legal reasons involved in a lawsuit, not relating to the movie, but between Dino De Laurentiis and like Universal Pictures, yeah, that had to do with um, Science of the Lambs. Oddly enough, oh because really? Because Dino De Laurentiis, he was suing them, saying that he owns Hannibal Lecter because he produced Manhunter, Michael Mann's Manhunter, yeah, 80, 85, 86. and so there was some kind of lawsuit happening revolving around. Uh, Science of the Lambs. Thomas Harris, the author, yeah. And so Army of Darkness kind of just got held back until things were, you know, a relationship between yeah. Dino Delirantos and Universal Pictures was figured out. Because my point is there, it seems like certainly not Evil Dead 1, but certainly 2 and 
three, they almost have that. I mean, that's played for more kind of laughs, but that certainly feels a little self-aware as well. Like, it seems like the genre was starting to go that way. But then, again, there's other... It's it's self-aware in terms of, like, the filmmaking is self-aware, like... The f- like the later installments of the Friday the 13th and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies are. Like the filmmakers are self-aware that this is going to a certain genre. I mean a certain fan base of a certain genre and they're playing with the conventions. But what Scream does is it makes the characters themselves self-aware. Yeah. You know, they they have seen Halloween. They know that you know, it's like you have a character there that's saying like, "This is a horror. This is like a horror movie. Yeah. If this was a horror movie, this is when this would happen. This is when that would happen." And that starts so becoming the characters themselves are kind of aware of the genre because there's always been, you know, as horror fans, you're always like, "How come nobody's ever seen a zombie movie inside zombie movies? Yeah. Like, nobody knows that they're supposed to shoot that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they the just head. unload the gun into the chest. It's like horror movies don't exist. Yeah. In the world of horror movies. Well, it's almost like because that's a compromise then or something. You have to try. I mean, even that later Romero movie, uh, Diary of the – not Diary of the Dead. Uh, Survive, survival of the Dead. Is that the one that's the found footage film? No, that's Diary of the Dead. Okay, Diary of the Dead. Well, yeah. The second yeah, Diary of, Diary of the Dead. Because I don't want to get confused with the title of that document of the dead documentary. Yeah, that's what I thought I said for, at first. Uh, that you know that supposedly has the caveat of living in a world that no one's ever seen zombies. Yeah. So that for the found footage thing to be completely effective, it's like this is the first time you know they've ever seen that before. So it is kind of because that beca- that this scream makes the sub sub genre like the faculty. Yeah, and but all at these the movies. same time, you could <clears> take a look at something like Fright Night. Yeah. Which was which? Uh, myself and Mike Vanderbilt covered ages ago on the show. Here, that's a that's a movie where you know you have a horror, you have a uh, a kid who knows about horror movies, watches the late night creature feature, you know mo- things, uh, hosted by Peter Vincent, played by Roddy McDowell, and whose friend is way into horror movies. And then they discover that there's a vampire living next door. I mean, that's totally like they, for all intents and purposes, that's very, you know, scream. Like he knows that he's putting the pieces together saying like, I know the, I know the vampire genre. I know horror movies. And what's going on next door is there's a vampire and I'm going to use the knowledge that I know and I'm going to get the host to help uh, you, <laughs> who was an actor in the in these old vampire movies, to help me slay this vampire. It's almost. Uh, um, could you say the same could be said of uh, like a Monster Squad? Then you know, because they kind of oh, yeah, know the totally. You yeah. know, I mean, it, it's it. You're getting a, it's a, a little farther of a leap to to say something like Lost Boys because in that the, the Corey Feldman characters. Yeah. Uh, the brothers are just like consider a survival guy. Yeah, you know they're they're, they're vampire <laughs> hunters. Yeah, but yeah. But they're not like I don't remember. I mean, they read comic books, but I don't remember them like saying like you know in Bale Lugosi's Dracula, you no, gotta you know. No. I mean, they but, know the rules, but but it's of never, killing I, vampires. I don't think they cite movies. Yeah, it's more about. But Monster Squad kind of like it. I felt like it's kind of like that. You know, they adore the old class. Maybe I don't know. In the world, there's a Frankenstein universal. Boris Karloff Frankenstein lived within the world of Monster Squad. Well, they have the. Mask the, the kids do this tomb. Okay, and in their clubhouse there are posters for things like Lucio Zombie. Fulci, zombie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they they're aware of that respect, but this is the first time where and the, Steve wears a t-shirt that says Stephen King rules. So yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, Monster Squad 2. So, I mean, this is not a completely new concept. Yeah. It just happens to be a movie that hits, the is in the right place, Scream what we're talking yeah. about, is in the right place at the right time with the right sensibility, and it's just, it's like lightning in a bottle, kind of. And I guess, I mean, it could be a stroke of brilliance for them to put it out around Christmas time because it's the only movie, it's not competing against anything else in its own genre. Yeah, you know? it really, it kind of really was because it's the idea of, you know, December is when, fa- for the most part, family movies come out. Or Oscar or contenders. Oscar contenders. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, for the longest time, things like the Star Wars movies came out, but those were big sci-fi adventures that the family would go to. And to say, well, you know, what about all the teenagers that don't want to go to the movies with their parents? Like, what are they doing during their winter break? Yeah. Let's grab what are they going to go see? Yeah. You know, let's let's gear a movie to them at Christmas time. Yeah. And it worked. I mean, I saw it. I remember going to see it with my friends, I think, at the Crossgates Mall, if I recall correctly. Uh, <clears throat> it was at a time for me when I was... It was like in the first stage of like my love for horror. Mm-hmm. I had seen In the Mouth of Madness. I had started to get very into horror. This was our senior year of high school. This was yeah. This was our December or Christmas of our senior year. Yeah. We were to graduate in that spring. Yeah, that was ninety seven. And then Blake and I met in August of ninety seven. We both uh, went to college together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then so. And then, so it was, it was at a point when I was really getting, into, I was very into horror movies, but it wasn't until you and I were in college when I started to really take, really examine them seriously and, you know, start to become, you know, trying to become a little bit of a scholar about them and, and really investigating other things that I previously had not had access to and talking to other horror fans and and reading up on stuff and learning all about them. So it was kind of this first, this initial uh, push of my going into my really serious fascination and kind of obsession with horror movies. Um, and for the longest time, I mean, y- you probably remember the, remember this, but for the longest time I didn't like this movie. I mean, I feel like when I saw it, I was like, ah, okay. And then as I got very into horror movies, I became a very big horror movie snob in, in like my late teens and early 20s. And it was like, you know, just because Kevin Williamson tells you he's ripping off something doesn't mean it's okay. Well, <laughs> like I took a very, you know, a very immature <clears throat> stance. You know, I think, you know, when a lot of people, inclu- very much including myself in their youth, you know, that's the, you know, it's a bit of a cliche that like, teenagers and stuff feel like they know. They already know everything. It wasn't until much later when I realized I, I, I knew close to nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at that time, and and uh, so it took it took a while for me to come back around on screen. I'm like, you know what? You know, this is not. Yeah, I was not given this movie a fair shake. Yeah, uh, it really is kind of great in a lot of ways. But at the time, like I said, what I saw with my friends it was like, okay, I was into it. And then as I started to become more of a, of a horror movie snob, I, I started to reject it because then that also led to the onslaught of things like I Know What You Did Last Summer and uh, Urban Legend. Yeah. It just it, it kind of opened the doors for a certain type of movie that maybe if I revisited them now, I, I would be much more uh, open-minded about. See, I never saw 
urban legend. I did. I did see. I know you did. I know what you did last summer. I remember liking that a lot. Maybe yeah, even more I, than this because that doesn't parody that. Yeah, it's true. You know? I mean, I like. <clears throat> I did honestly. Like I kind of. I did too. I also was in love with Jennifer Love Hewitt at the time, so that probably helped a little. Helped a little. (laughs) And I think I even saw there's a second I know what you did last summer. Yeah, I still know what you did last summer. And I remember liking that as well. And then remember when the faculty came out in like 1999 or so like that. Well, that that was another instance of. And that was then Kevin Williamson telling you in it, like, this is what happened in Invasions of the Body Snatchers. Like, so they even. I remember you making that distinction. I never remember you not liking this movie. I do remember. Us talking about it and then getting to the point when the faculty came out, we're like, now we're getting to the point where they're even self-referencing the movie that they're not yeah, yeah. quote unquote ripping off of or well, stealing from. I mean, this does you know, there's a lot of talk about Halloween in this movie, but it's more about a genre in this movie. But in the faculty, and I remember when I saw the faculty because I've always been a very strong supporter of Robert Rodriguez ever since I saw uh, like El Mariachi, yeah. and Desperado in the in the mid nineties. And then, of course, from Dusk Till Dawn and so on. And that book he wrote, too, that you liked. How, yeah, to, make a, yeah. how to make a movie with under... Was that... Uh, something, something, something. Yeah. What is, he wrote a book. It was, yeah. a di- it was basically a diary of his making of El Mariachi. And young aspiring filmmakers could grab it and show you how to cut corners and stuff. Back in the day, I don't even know <coughs> if it's still relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that, that, that book ended up... Uh, Becoming a, like a, a recurring featurette for his movies, the Ten Minute Film School. Oh yeah, where he would on <clears throat> uh, almost all his Blu-rays or DVDs, they have like he kind of shows you like an extra, like a little master class on how he made the movie, the way he made it for as much money as he made it for. Yeah. Um, so you had that genre of all these movies putting out stuff like that, and the faculty's out in '99, yeah. and, and I remember that one. I don't even know if I saw that one all the way through. You know? I saw that at the movie. Well, I went to the movies a lot then. Yeah. Dion was preoccupied with girls in those days. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where I was. Trying to, I was trying to make Blake happy because Blake didn't like horror movies. I was trying to make the girls happy because they didn't like me. Whereas I was still a, a big film nerd. You know? And that, that was the only thing I had to do. You and the friends were going, I was ostracized. I was alone and, you know. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so you saw a lot of movies, and you saw the faculty, and and uh, and I saw the <clears throat> excuse last me, summer. I saw yeah. I saw all those movies when they came out. Yeah, yeah, because that was probably one of my most intense periods of going to the movies. Yeah, you know, I I, I later lapped that at when I got out of college with a friend of ours from that Dion and I had in college who. We're still friends with Aaron. You know, and he and I would go to the movies, you know, three, four times a week sometimes. <laughs> it's commendable. Awesome. But, uh, yeah, it was more about I, I got mad. You know, it was more of, you know, feeling things were being ripped off. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, there's a certain breed of music fan that is very into things. And then once they have an album that's a hit. They don't like that band anymore. They yeah. sold it. Now everybody likes them. Sure. You know, yeah. the, I like them and nobody liked them. Yeah. And now everybody likes them, so fuck them. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, yeah. I think I uh, uh, I think I had subconsciously was had that kind of yeah. <laughs> mentality with horror at the time. And it was like, eh, like, you know, where were you? Yeah. <laughs> when horror needed you. Um, and so 
Well, it wasn't just horror. I mean, even like the mob movies of the day, we got kind of got tired of and stuff. And like you know, like everyone loves Donnie Brasco, and it's not my favorite of the mob movies, but like of that era where it's like everything started to seem like it was playing itself out. Like people were still like playing, you know, hands of cards, but they were still using only the cards they had left in the deck after they put the rest <laughs> down. You know, so we're kind of it was kind of it was a hard because yeah. it was a transition of where you're seeing this real, you know. Uh, People, people really just citing this, these art house pictures like the independent boom of the 90s with clerks or, sure. you know, all the other ones like that. And then you have movies like this and it's and then they're still doing, you know, there's still genre picks coming out, horror genre movies. So if you didn't like this, luckily, this wasn't the, the only fair you were exposed to, but uh it was a weird transition to, to, and then with the use of CGI, that's adding a whole new element in there. And then, you know, uh, certainly gore as well. You know, you get another level of gore. So it becomes a very kind of like uh, round robin of, of what's happening. You know, the screen comes out and it was, uh, it made a crap load of money, what, worldwide as well? Right? I would imagine so. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't, as kind of, you know, in, in some ways, ignorant Americans, we don't really pay too much attention to that, you know, international box office as much as domestic box office. Yeah. Even though the majority of film goers are not here. Yeah. You know, domestic box office are, is what's typically reported to us. Yeah. Like, for some reason, that's more important. Where then you'll hear like, oh, uh, Aquaman just made a billion dollars. But a lot, you know, a majority of that is not was not made here. Yeah, it's a lot of DC fans overseas. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know. This has got this might have gotten brought. I might have brought this up on Cliffhanger when we did the Cliffhanger episode, which was you know, the Stallone. I remember there was a period in the '90s there where Stallone's movies were not doing that great. Here, we're talking about like Demolition Man and Judge Dredd and Assassins and. Uh, they did okay. Well, even as you but didn't... he but he was the highest paid actor in Hollywood yeah. at the time, and there was this like, why is he making so much money when his movies are not the highest making, the biggest budget? I mean, the biggest box office movies at the time. Like, well, they are. Just not they're just yet. huge in Japan. <laughs> yeah, just overseas, not domestically. You know, I mean, because then we talked about that in the cliffhanger. That's one or two of his movies weren't didn't even get a theatrical release here, yeah. but overseas they did. And uh, one of them I want to actually see. I was reading anyway. But, uh, but uh, so, th- yeah, Scream comes out and, uh, you know, having Wes Craven attached to. Yeah. Did you see it at the movies? Scream? Yeah. Yeah, I saw Yeah, I went and saw it at the theater. I don't recall who I was with or what the, what the yeah. you know, and it's funny because I do remember like seeing American Pie that way or seeing, I know you did last summer who I was with, but I don't remember who I was with with Scream or I don't remember it coming out in the wintertime. You know, so I don't know. I must have seen it then, maybe in January or or, or yeah. you know February, because it was in the theater for, and then it had a re-release as well. And I remember we went. I went with my friends specifically because of like the word of mouth. Yeah, like the fact that this was people were talking about this movie. We had a huge buzz around it. And I remember you know going in loving it. You know, you get involved. You know, you get in there, you get hooked right in, and then just. You know, it, it keeps you the entire time. And watching it now, I, it's, again, one of these movies where it's like, since I haven't seen it in so many years, I'm like, that's it? Like, it just gets off going, and then it's just, it almost seems like I'm watching, like, it, like the Cliff Notes. And, yeah. I, you know, because I always remember... a lot of time, yeah. But it's, it, that's my problem with a lot of these movies, like, you know, like A Lethal Weapon or something. I, you go back and watch it, and I'm like, oh, I thought there was more. It's just, this is the, you know, it's just, this is it. Yeah. You know, where you feel like nowadays stuff needs it's to like be so It's like everything you remembered... Nuanced. 
you you assume when you remember things that you're remembering just parts of it. Yeah. Because it's been so long. But I'm remembering the whole thing. And then, <laughs> and then when you go see scene. it again, you're like, no, I don't remember just parts of it. Those, All those parts are all that's in the movie. That comprises the whole movie. So, yeah, it's it's weird because when I come back watching this now, I take it more almost as a parody, as a comedy now. And I don't know if that's with age or because. It's funny you say that. To me, it's kind of a dated because we are from. It may not be dated to other people, but yeah. for like me. We were that age. Yeah, the clothes. We're the age of the, what the characters are supposed, how old the characters are supposed to be. In that, that movie. movie and out. then, like, you know, I saw those styles, you know. And, and to me, it this almost, the, the stuff that the kids were wearing is almost, you know, it's like you look at the early 90s where it was like that really uh, loud MC, MC Hammer colors. Or that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't find that, oddly enough, as dated as some of this mid-90s stuff, maybe because I was we were in high school at the time. Yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah, I, f- I find it a little more of as, as a comedy, like a parody now. As I did seeing Young, I was it was funny to me, but it was still more scary. Yeah, it's funny that <clears throat> you say that because... In researching, there's all this talk about how it brilliantly meshed comedy and horror, kind of, you know, talking people talking about it in a in a way like horror hadn't always done that. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Like this was odd. a brilliant. This was the stroke of brilliance to mesh comedy and horror. And when I watch it, even now, maybe it's because I'm not. Wa- we didn't watch it with an audience. You know, things like comedy play very different. We tried to get my mom to watch it, but my mom was not bothered. And then she just kept getting up and sitting down, and we had to keep pausing it. So I was like, at that point, Mom, just leave. Take your cup of tea and leave. You because, go watch it tomorrow. Yeah, you go watch Murder, She Wrote. It's a real good one on tonight. You know, come on. I'm DVRing it for later. Just cause, you, you know, know, I find comedies play better in, in a packed house. They just do. Mm-hmm. There's something about the energy of an audience that, you know, like... You, there's jokes that you could watch at home that are like, oh, that was funny. Whereas if you see it with an audience, you might physically yeah. like laugh out loud. Yeah. Because there's something about the communal experience of, of, of seeing it together yeah. and playing off the energy of the, of the room. Almost like a tension's released and then you're able to just and because let, let I, go. Because I haven't seen this movie in a theater since 1996, like yeah. I don't remember the experience uh, that well. So it's hard for me to watch it if I watch it by myself or like tonight we watch it together with just the two of us. And like, I don't, I don't find it all that funny. I mean, I find it there's light moments and I see things that are clearly like comic relief and jokes and stuff like that. But like, I don't see it as being wildly more comedic than any other horror movie. You know, like every horror movie does have, for the most part, does have those moments, especially like in the modern era, I'm talking more about like late seventies into eighties, because there is this, you kind of need those moments to lighten the tension. You yeah, know, they are they are literally comic relief in the context of a very tense, driven or suspense, or sometimes very brutal existence of a movie. I mean, even totally things like in the, you know that we we're just talking about, the new nightmare. And in the mouth of madness, have these comedic moments. I mean, something like, I mean, even the thing has some moments that are kind of 
you know, lines that are funny. And I remember, like, I got shot today. <laughs> <laughs> you turn that down, I got shot oh, you know, Don't let me sit to this fucking couch. <laughs> I do remember this being a packed house when seeing it. Oh, yeah. And I remember remember the opening bit with Drew Barrymore, like, everyone on their toes and yeah. trying to be quiet. I guess because- my, my point was only, like, I don't see it as being as comedic as I think. It's one of those things where I said at the beginning of the show, there are a lot of things that I feel like are rewritten history yeah. or misnomers about that about this movie. Yeah. And this is that's one of them for me, is that like this concept of having comedic elements in this, one, like it's not a con it's like it doesn't play as much a comedy than I mean, you're saying on on your viewing this time it, you, the comedy played more to you this time than you remember it playing yeah, before. Because I don't know, I feel <laughs> like it's a it, those other movies, it's not a conscious decision. It's it's like since like you know it's it's almost to the level of since the characters are knowing this this rule system and they're 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 kind of winking at you that that they know that's what takes it the step more that I feel like uh, you know character reactions or even just stuff that happens or how you know the music's interjected and played that it it almost has a little because even the the, the the heavy in it they don't really treat the the the, the killer the mass killer with all that kind of respect, he almost becomes like this, He's you know. a little bit of a buffoon. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, so like it's, so a lot of those movies, like say you take like say Jason Takes Manhattan, that it has laughs in it, but it's not, it's not playing as a comedy, but it, ha- it likes to have comedic moments, but also it has the problem with since it's being the eighth in the installment, it's almost jumping the shark at that point. Yeah. So it's having that going against it. Where after that, you know, I guess Jason goes to space, uh, you know, that, that's just, you know. Of course, it's a given. But like here, it's it's like you know, in those movies, you still are kind of scared for the for the uh, of the when you see the killer. Yeah. And there's certain scenes in this movie where okay, it's scary that they're behind him. But then when when this person's running after him, it's almost like a bad not a bad Scooby Doo villain, but it's like a it's you know they they certainly the it's like a it becomes like a Bruce Willis like Mel Gibson movie where they have to get the crap kicked out of him. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're, I mean, they're you know they're they're getting flipped. They're getting punched in the face. They're getting beer. They're getting doors. So it's like they're getting they're taken just as bad as a beating as the person that their victims are. And yeah. it's in a, and it almost they don't they don't hold back on that. So it's almost kind of like that the, the that they're bumbling. It's you know if you you could probably do a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern dead version <laughs> of this and have it be you know um, the two from Billy and yeah <laughs> from their perspective and then that would be something like where it's just a complete comedy where you know they're trying to figure out what's going on or who's you know maybe they don't even know who the killer. See, we could do a Tom Stoppard play right now. Uh, so it, that's why I think more it plays more comedy for me and also because I haven't seen it in so long yeah so coming back to it with such you know uh, of it being of that tra- you know it's the baggage you bring with it as well sure so if you're not seeing it if you're seeing it removed from the era maybe it'll play a little but for me I guess it's because it has that mark of late 90s on it and then it 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 moves so quickly you know and that that you're to me it's it's very quick which i think it probably is very effective because it keeps the momentum going yeah. but for me i think it just lays in some of the the silliness with the characters like i used to love matthew lillard in this movie like he was like you know people used to tell me that i looked like matthew lillard in high school i used to get you know people used to say i'm not going to quote what they'd say to me but you they say you look like that n word from scream and i was like oh yeah you know it's you know you know i look like matthew lillard you know and i love matthew lillard but like 
and you look at it back now, it's like, oh my god, he's so over the top, and it works. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just it's the whole movie's so zany. There's all this stuff going on. It's just all the characters are almost like archetypes of the genre, and then it, uh, it's it just it. It ends so quickly for me. I was like, oh, I, I can't believe that already, you know, we're at the house at the end. You know, I was like, well, you know, I thought there'd be more involved in it, you know. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's weird because so many horror movies all take place in one location. Yeah. So then it then, but for some reason it does feel weird that the last half of this movie all takes place in one place. You yeah, know? <laughs> at a party, yeah, like a house party. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because there is like this this huge buildup and there are these, there's the school and there's her house and there's her friend's house and uh, there, there there is a lot going on. And then very quickly, even before technically what would be considered like the third act begins, you know, well, in, you know, in the middle of the second act or towards the end of the second act, we're all we're where the finale of this movie is going to happen. And, you know, that could work for <clears> it, too, because it's almost misguiding you. You don't think that this is suddenly going to be the finale thrown at you, you know, yeah. but then it also then it just happens so much. You all of a sudden realize you're in the third act and everyone's dying. <laughs> you're like, this has to be near the end of the movie because <laughs> yeah. there's so much going on. Uh it's just odd. It's odd when you come back to a movie like this and see that. You know, and this this goes back to last week we were talking about Hitchcock and we were bringing Rope up extensively, and then Leopold and Lope, those two killers from the ninety or from the teens, maybe from the twenties. And I I said com, Compulsion, the movie that that's based on. And then I was talking about every generation. There's killers who end up, you know, uh, trying to kill people just to see if they can get away with it or whatever. In, in real life, I mean. Yeah. And then. Coincidentally, we're doing Scream next, and I'm watching the movie. I'm like, oh yeah, this is basically these two guys are, yeah. you know, the two guys from Rope, or you know, what other movies you could cite where there's multiple, you know, um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the end of like Mark for Death, where you find out, spoilers, it's two Jamaicans in Screwface <laughs> doing all the killings. <laughs> yeah, Screwface. <laughs> yeah, sorry for anybody who didn't see that. The white boy Hacha. Uh, you know, so it's it's that gets back to how funny you we can make these leaps from. Yeah. Last movie to this movie. Uh, and then, like, also, what you see, like, in North by Northwest, uh, and, and I think you see s- some of in Rope, is that there is this uh, homosexual uh, o- undertone or overtone. If, you know, are they, are they actually lovers in Rope? Or, or are they actually lovers in, in North by Northwest? And here, you, I've, I never got that implication as a kid. Yeah. But then watching it now, I'm like, oh, there is kind of some, almost you feel like a sexual tension between the Skeet Ulrich and Matthew Lillard character. Yeah. And well, I don't at the know very if that's least just... you, you can, at the very least, it, you could read into it that, like, Matthew Lillard does have some kind of attraction to the Billy Loomis yeah. character. Maybe, Whether maybe it's that's sexual, sexual it could or be, yeah. I, idolizing. There is something there. Yeah. I feel like there's another movie we talked about that we talked, uh, oh, but maybe Lost Boys. We talked a lot about how, you know, the idea oh, the of homosexuality, or at the very least, a, a kind of an attraction. What's his face that, that Michael has to the <laughs> to that, Keith Sutherland? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Some kind of attraction. He there, may whether, not. It may whether be, it's sexual or not. It may be sexual, but he may just not know it yet. Or it could be yeah, the idolization of that's like there's a movie I really like called um, Gangster Number One from the early odds with uh, Paul Bettany and Malcolm McDowell. And it's about Malcolm McDowell telling the story of him rising in the London mob in the 60s and 70s. And then in the flashbacks, he narrates it. It's Paul Bettany playing him. And he becomes obsessed with the head mobster in it. And it's 
almost like it's a sexual obsession, but it's it's his psyche. It goes beyond that. It's it's look how beautiful the clothes are. Look how beautiful, you know. And it's Malcolm McDowell saying this to you, you know, the clean cut. Look how great it's put off the cuff on the left. Yeah, you know. So it's like maybe it is sexual, or maybe these people, you know, it's Just the man crush. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, you certainly could be either way. You get that in this movie, and it's and it's and I think. I mean, Farley Granger in Rope, the actor, was gay in real life, so maybe he was trying to insinuate. I'm sure he talked to Hitchcock about it. And then there's the notorious story in, in North by Northwest with, um, what's his face, Martin, um, I was going to say Martin Balsam, Martin Landau, yeah. where he was playing his Walter role. Matthau. Yeah, Walter Matthau. <laughs> I'm playing it a certain way. <laughs> Dude. Um, where Martin Landau was playing his thing slightly as with, with a, a hair of homosexuality, and then actually James Mason took him aside. His his the, the other bad guy in the movie goes, "Listen, I know I see what you're doing here." And he's saying, it, "And it's upsetting me because then you're self-imposing it on me, and I have to play it that way too." And it's it's not that James Mason was upset that he was he was didn't want to play his character with the air of homosexuality. It was that Martin Landau was making that choice for him, and then it's going to uh, subconsciously or consciously affect his character. So he had to, yeah. you know, so it's it's interesting you have that here with the two of them near the end of it. You're like, oh, are they maybe, uh, you know, having a three-way and making out too? <laughs> you, know, you, know, you, know, you know, I don't know. You know, uh, Skeet Ulrich's character is kind of interesting in this movie because he, it's another thing. See, this is the, for me, it was like a little funny because it's like he comes in like with this, you know, you know like it's like he's always running in yeah, and he's got yeah. that Johnny Depp, Kind of, that's why they, you know, yeah. they well, cast him. You know, Wes Craven kind of famously cast Johnny Depp in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And Skeet Ulrich does like, that has like a greasy Johnny Depp-ness. Yeah. <laughs> Coming in, you know, he's very, I guess, what is that, the Crybaby? That era is that, yeah. you know, where he's got like, you know, he's coming in through the window and he's got the white shirt on and he's very with his, his hair is always in his face, you know, and it's funny now because I don't remember knowing... I remember it being a complete surprise to me that they were the two. Because at the end of it, when you have like you know Nev Campbell running up the the the, uh, the sidewalk up to the house, and you have Jamie Kennedy and Matthew Lillard, I remember being like, "Which one? I don't know. I think it's Matthew Lillard because he's been gone." And but then I, it being a complete shock to me when Skeet Ulrich gets up. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think that was done very effectively. Well, I think you know through centuries of storytelling and and you know we're kind of conditioned especially in a story like this <clears throat> you know throughout the history of slasher movies you know for two decades before this when this came out we were kind of conditioned to think that there is a killer yeah and so it was like a very clever sleight of hand yeah to say like no it's not a killer there's two killers spoil yeah. <laughs> For anybody that hasn't seen Scream yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of interesting behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, I actually know somebody. I'm friends with somebody who worked with Kevin Williamson back in his struggling actor days in New York City. And he's the writer for Scream, yeah. Who's also um, is, is uh, gay as well in real life. That I don't know. I'll yeah. take your word for it. Yeah. So um, this, this is the screenwriter. So this yeah. is this is when doing research. They were saying that he he's he's you know pro gay rights. Of course, duh. You know he's you know so maybe he was injecting some of this ambiguity in there on purpose, or maybe just because you're writing from that standpoint, 
you get the bro crush, and then you know it's just inherent. So, yeah, yeah. So because <clears throat> it's not, o- and I don't think it's ever overt. But um, according to this person that I know, and we're probably talking about the eighties. Uh, worked with him in a restaurant. He was a waiter. So he started acting first at the yeah. New York, right? Yeah. Then he so, packed it up and moved to L.A.? Yeah. So it was here. And they were saying, like, you know, you know, fair play to him. God bless him for pulling his shit together. And, you know, they had lost touch with him, so they <clears> don't know what happened. But apparently he was a bit of a mess when he was here. Like, he drank too much, would come into work all disheveled, maybe had he been in fights and stuff. Uh, like me. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, like really did not have his shit together when he was here. Indeed, and then yeah. at some point, he ch- turned his life around, moved to L.A., and pursued screenwriting. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's, 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 it's odd because uh, you and I have, have, you know, dabbled our hands in writing and uh, when we both had books published, but I mean like for screenplays and stuff yeah. like that. And it's funny that he, you know, his story is that he goes to L.A. and he, he writes what a, a spec script for teaching Mrs. Tingle. Yeah. Which um, gets... Uh, sold, sold, but then it just sits in kind of like a like development hell for a little while. Happens to most script, yeah. scripts. Yeah, I mean there are screenwriters that are successful screenwriters, make a living, a good living screenwriting in L.A. and have never had a movie yeah. actually made. Yeah, they're only doing that and they're sustaining themselves, but just because their stuff's being bought, but then it's either being shelved and never gets developed, whatever happens, and so you can make an entire career out of just writing stuff that never goes anywhere. Uh, so he. I guess I guess the the key thing is here is he had an agent. He he got the agent. The agent got the spec script so, sold. So not gonna figure out how to do that. Yeah, yeah we're just trying to figure out how to get that <laughs> that that screenplay agent. So then he he's then broke and he's he's looking at it at like where he's got to try to make some money to pay rent. He's got a lot of bills and he goes how he house sits. Yeah. And then when he's house sitting, I mean this is all house sits for a friend of them, which you know. I've done when I was broke, you know, yeah. you make a, it gives you a place to stay. They usually give you money for food or you have the uh, f- stocked fridge. So even if you're not making that much, which they, people will usually, even if they're friends or family will give you a couple hundred dollars yeah. for doing it. Especially if you got you pets. still, you get like a week of being fed <laughs> yeah. you don't have to buy food. In seclusion. Stuff. Yeah. And he was able to, uh, oh, this is, this is part quickly is he writes scream there yeah. and then he's able to sell it and it's you know and get himself out of that debt and it's like wow I wish I was able to you know it's like how that works so serendipitously for him but uh, uh, you know he ends up selling and he gets this when they put it to market like on a Friday by like the Saturday or Sunday Monday there's this bidding war by you know some pretty big people to get this thing bought and then it gets up to I guess like Oliver Stone and the Weinsteins at, at Dimension, the, the new like subdivision of Merrimax that they had, and then the Weinsteins evidently buy it or eventually buy it for a, a, like four hundred thousand dollars or yeah, something like that, which is a good chunk of change in nineteen ninety five or it's whatever a good that chunk is. Of change right now, I yeah. take it. <laughs> He's like, I'll buy for that for a dollar for three days worth of work. He yeah. reportedly wrote screaming like three days. Yeah, it was a long weekend. He was there, you know, and we can get into what he was while he was there. So, but it's just like I find like wow, you know how. You know, uh, freaking lucky is he to be able to, you know, be in such a dire straits as he's as he's yeah. out of his own mouth is saying, and then he's able to pen this thing in, in a three day weekend, write ninety pages or so, and then on top of that, tack on, which is a stroke of genius, I think, uh, f- 
treatments, five, four or five page treatments for the second and third proposed sequels, yeah. and then sells that as a pack as an idea saying this is not only maybe a movie, this could become a franchise, and that could be the allure of, you know, they don't greenlit that until the movie ends yeah, up coming yeah. out, but that's a brilliant, uh, yeah, I think that's a really great idea. Yeah, so. it certainly doesn't hurt to say, like, look, there's potential yeah. for more money to be made with this. Yeah, and uh, so he's able to just shit this thing out, which is not a small feat. I mean, we've known people who are able to just go home on a weekend and, and, and crap out of 90 pages. But, I mean, me, you know, I, I'm dyslexic. I have <laughs> attention deficit, you know, all this. So it's hard sitting behind a, and then writing something out That's can, as well as that is concise. I mean, you and I can both write something in a weekend, but, you know, if, is it going to be any good? Or, you know, you got to get <laughs> yeah, the first yeah. thing on the page before you're able to. Yeah, it's also, you know, you never know the. The process. The of, process. Yeah. You know, there's something like Rocky was written in X amount of fucking hours or something like that. But then you don't know. They never then talk about the rewriting process. Yeah. It's not like that's the Rocky that you saw <laughs> went to screen. It could have been a, a version that, you know, was completely yeah. different or had other eyes look on it or got into it. So, um, you know, that's also there's withheld information to kind of accentuate the. Mythology, yeah. the romanticism of being a screenwriter. Yeah, like, I wrote it. It was screen was written in three days. Like, okay, maybe the first draft. We don't know. Maybe then there was four more drafts written over the yeah. next three months. Or exactly. That was tightening up and polishing it. You know. Uh, and then he writes it because he he gets uh, he he's there at the. See, then this is where it becomes fuzzy. So I don't know if he's there and he has an idea like I want to write a horror movie. Well, apparently. Like what? So, so the legend goes, he's watching a true crime television show. Yeah, which you know are still, uh, you know, around obviously in, in spades. Uh, but when we were when we were young and in the in the eighties and nineties, you'd always watch like Friday nights. There'd be like twenty twenty yeah. or Dateline, and there'd always be like, you know. A murderer. <laughs> yeah. It's very, like, you see them now on the 48 Hours or the uh, Datelines, you know? Like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's and he's watching this show in this house that's not his own. Uh, a secluded house, I think, too, About maybe. the Gainesville Ripper. Yeah. Uh, Danny Rowling. Or Rowling. And, uh, and I've, I've house-sit. And it yeah. is, if you watch things that are kind of creepy... It, th- there's something about it that makes it extra creepy because you're in a strange place. Yeah. And you're alone. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's one thing if you're, you could get creeped out in your own house or your own apartment or whatever, but there's something about like, I'm in, a, I'm in strange surroundings. I don't know the neighbors. I don't know how long it's going to take. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he's watching this show about, uh, about the Gainesville killer who was, uh, a serial killer who confessed to murdering eight, like, college girls. Yeah, he, he over the course, of, he had a really messed up childhood. His dad was a cop, and his dad uh, abused his mom in front of him and all this kind of stuff. And then he got to an age where, in the span of 1990, in, like, May of 1990, he, like, in a family argument, almost kills his dad. His dad loses an ear and an eye. And then later on in that August, he starts burglarizing houses, this guy. And he finds two co-eds, co-eds that are home. He murders them both, and then he poses the body. He rapes them, murders them, poses the body. Then he leaves, and then he goes. A couple nights later, uh, he burglarizes another house, and then the person isn't home. He waits for the girl to come home. She comes home. He again rapes her, murders her, and then he decapitates her head. And he he poses the body, and they, he always poses them in kind of brutal sexual 
suggestive positions. And then he decapitates her and he puts her head on on a shelf looking at the body just for the complete shock value, of course. Yeah. So that you whoever know, finds this is going to be, be horrified. Yeah. So he does that. And then people are getting then by that time, it's getting like nationwide attention. Like there's, you know, maybe there's a potential serial killer and it's around uh, the I forget what uh, area of Florida it's around. And people are dropping out of school because it's the, it's going to be the fall season. You know, they're worried. And then he, I think, breaks into t- uh, two other people's houses, uh, is confronted by a boyfriend. He kills the boyfriend. He kills another girl. Then there's another girl home, a third person. He kills her and rapes and has sex with her and then leaves. And then they catch him, I think, for just burglarizing. And that's when he they find stuff in his house or whatever, and he confesses to everything. And then he even confesses, I think, on his because he he's put to death by lethal injection, maybe 19, in 2006. He confesses that in another state, he kills a family while they were getting ready for dinner. He just busted in their house and he mutilates and whatever. And the 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 cops there said they had a lot of similarities, posing of the bodies, the mutilation, all that. And then I think he copped to that as well. So this, so this gain, so he was dubbed the Gainesville Ripper, this dude, and uh, which I believe Gainesville is where Tom Petty's from. A little bit of trivia. Oh, sweet! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so uh, he's watching a, a, this doc. Kevin Williamson is watching this show, and he's broke. You know, he's behind on rent. And I will say that I've been to back in high school. Certainly, where I the suburb I grew up in, it's it's. It's urban in certain areas, but like the richer areas are r- more rural. And you've, I've taken you to. So when, we, when I used to go to friends' house parties to these houses, they're in the middle of the woods. And it yeah. certainly becomes a situation like uh, what's the name of that um, Joss Whedon, Whedon movie you just brought up? Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, that or this, where it's like you're in the middle. So I would always, especially for more intimate parties where it's only just a bunch of people hanging out, or if people end up like going off and making out with girls and then you're alone. And you're sitting there like in this odd cow, you know, outside. It's and they always have these great light setups that just have the light with the woods exposed. And <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you're saying, you don't know the neighbors, you don't know how to get out of the house, you don't even you, maybe you didn't even get there by your own car. <laughs> you know, so it, it certainly has gives this level of creepiness that you yeah. can see, you know, something certainly happening. And so, allegedly, maybe there's part of the story is that he might have then called. He was freaked out from watching the show, so he called a friend, and then they were talking. And then, and then the the conversation came to. He's a horror fan, so this conversation then goes to like, "Oh, what's your favorite scary movie?" Yeah, and so they start talking about horror movies, and uh, supposedly all of this, these events, much like, you know, when we did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that one night of storming and <laughs> stuff inspired. You know, uh, then to let's write scary stories, yeah. and that's where Frankenstein was born. Apparently, this inspires him to write uh, Scream. Yeah, and so he ends up, or what was then called Scary Movie. Yeah, with no relation to the years later, the parody Scary Movies series. Now he was a guy who is reportedly a very big fan of the of the horror genre. Halloween was like his favorite movie, so. Uh, it you know it seemed like a good uh, you know a good fit like he knew the rules uh, that he talks about within the movie the rules of slasher movies and um, and he does something that I think well here's the thing there's this other aspect of it that people are like oh he did this brilliant thing of he created like you know a movie that was like what if John Hughes 
had made a horror movie. Certainly brings up elements of the relationships between the people with John Hughes, the kids in the movie, yeah, has a John Hughes kind of... But again, there's an aspect of a lot, like movies throughout the 80s were, you know, there was a lot of that, you know, maybe not as cleverly written as Scream was, but I remember sitting on on like a drunken Saturday night with the Hastings brothers, Dave of course, did uh, the Silver Bullet cast here on our show as a side cast with me and Steve Hastings, his twin brother, is the person that wrote the music that opens every episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, the Brothers Hastings. The Brothers Hastings sitting there and watching a horror movie called Neon Maniacs. Yeah. Which was a movie that got thrown on quite often. Martin loves that movie. <laughs> Martin's always saying, have you seen Me- Neon Maniacs yet? Martin, if you're listening to this, see, Blake, look at that. Blake loves Neon Maniacs. And there was this element of, and we had seen it, and watched it many times, and I'm watching it, and there's a, 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 a teenage girl who's kind of very into makeup special effects, creature effects, and stuff. But it is basically what a lot of those movies were, including things like... Uh, even Halloween to a certain extent and Nightmare on Elm Street, like a teenage melodrama that then gets interrupted by horror. And I I remember sitting there like with a beer in hand watching the Animaniacs and turning to the the Hastings and being like, I kind of really wish like the Neon Maniacs don't show up in this view. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'd rather just watch this teenage melodrama of these kids. And I think it's what I, what, you know, what I love about, you know, to a much goofier extent, say by the bell, and what I love about Twenty One Jump Street, this idea of like teenage melodrama yeah. is something that's very appealing to me, especially as I get older in a nostalgic way. Do you remember that movie that we rented? I don't know the name of it, but we rented it in college, and it was it was a VHS. It was shot on VHS, but it had Tom Savini in it, and he he's playing Jack the Ripper. Yeah, and I feel like that. Even thinking about that now, and I've only seen it on that one viewing, that was very, and that's, I think it was mid-80s. I feel like that was very self-aware of the genre because everybody's name in it was John Carpenter yeah. or or Peter Cushing or Vincent Price. You know, like, like you, sure. you start getting well, that. Well, like the Night of the Creeps is a lot like yeah, that. Yeah, like yeah, Everybody's named. Yeah. That's uh, JC and, and Cronenberg. And yeah. I think her name, the girl's name is Cronenberg and Romero and uh, stuff like that. But uh, so this idea of like him creating, you know, taking, you know, the the Breakfast Club and putting them in a horror movie, again, not a totally original idea. Yeah. It kind of had been done a million times, especially because most of these slasher movies are about teenagers. Yeah, going off, segregating <laughs> themselves somewhere and then getting picked off. Yeah. But he just happened to do it, you know. Maybe perhaps in a more clever way. Yeah. Maybe they, you know, they talk differently. It certainly was 10 years later than a lot of these movies. Um, and I think what's interesting is he talks about how he was very desperate and uh, Kevin Williamson, you know, we just talked about all the financial woes and, 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 the, and those things. And he said, look, I wrote this script to sell it. Yeah. So I wrote it to be a good read, you know, not so much worrying about whether it was inevitably going to be a good film. And I think that's it's a very interesting 
thing in terms of, you know, as you said earlier, you and I have dabbled in screenwriting and, uh, and we've taken classes on it and all that stuff. So, uh, and we've written screenplays. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we've read books on it. Yeah. You know, there is this element of, and if you read screenplays for movies that have been made, sometimes you're like, you read the screenplay and you're like, this is, you know, like, it's not a good read. Like, yeah. this is not great. Yeah. And yet it made a great movie. And because well, that's the jump of yeah. Pen, to, yeah, pen to pay or just, you know. I just thought it was a very interesting quote. Yeah. You know, by him. That it was, he was very conscious of the fact that he needed to sell it. So when somebody read it, it had to be really engaged. It also has an element almost of a Heathers in it, too, because uh, in this viewing, too, you know, you take out the Nev Campbell character, maybe her father, like nobody's really likable in it. You know, the, 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 the characters are very to the point where there's, they're, they're apathetic about what's going on around them. They, they're, they're almost like, uh, it's almost like all that's accentuated where they're, you know, oh, uh, you know, uh, Henry Winkler is, is hanging from the 30 yard line. Let's go look before they take his body down or the Matthew Lillard jokingness. And, you know, to a certain extent, that all happens in real life where, oh, did you hear Joe Blow died? Oh, my God. And then you talk about the creepy details. Yeah. And this, it's almost like they're reveling in it. And then you have like, you know, everybody is their stereotype in the movie. Like the, the cheerleader girl is so mean when they're in the bathroom and she's listening sure. or the people are, you know, running around. You know, as the killer in the school and everyone's like not horrified about it, but they're like laughing like this is awesome. Somebody did that. And they don't care that Nev Campbell was almost murdered and that their colleague or their student friend was murdered. It's like, yeah. So but, it's, like, but like you said, there is a certain realism. To yeah. That, but then, but it also gives you that idea, the level of you don't care so much when these when certain characters end up getting killed because it's like that idea of like them. I mean, it's it's more, I guess, uh, elementary, elementary, like earlier but like about like oh if they're gonna have sex they're gonna die or if they're gonna sin they're gonna you know that kind sure, of a, in the yeah. earlier you know the uh, more of the alpha ideas of it where this is more nuanced is just you know that no one really cares that this is happening they're almost bringing it on themselves sure. they're going to you know they're going to like a, a party to drink beer and uh during curfew yeah and, <laughs> and, and the, sh- the deputies dropping them off you know uh, david arquette is dropping them off there and saying don't worry about it they're just gonna you know they're just gonna have some time then later on they're almost run down by the teenagers who were you know driving 90 miles an hour on back dirt roads you know yeah, so it's drunk. like yeah and it's like it that plays a lot of that you look at how the the era of politics and culture today you know, suddenly in the past couple of years and you look at the stuff like that where it's like, oh, my gosh, this guy, would, you know, it's like he's like, oh, they're just some kids letting loose on the weekend. It's like, well, they're they're killing each other, you know, and he's all and, he, and he's he's letting them do it. But he's just keeping an eye out to make sure no killer is going to come and murder him. You know, but yeah. they could easily kill themselves, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I think what's one of the fun things about this movie is that it is a movie that lays out the quote-unquote rules of yeah. this kind of movie, and then does a very good job of either adhering to them, even though the characters know. Yeah. You know, when she's like, you know, the big-breasted girl runs up the stairs when she shouldn't be running up the stairs, and then five less than five minutes later, she runs out the, up the stairs instead of running out the back door. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jamie Kennedy watching the movie, the character of Randy watching Halloween and being like, Look behind you. Yeah. Look behind While you. The the, as the killer's behind him, you know it does this good, this good, this very fun thing of 
pointing out the rules and then still giving you those rules. Yeah. And then by doing that is able to then also break the rules. Well, it feels like we all knew what the rules were in the genre, but it was just maybe never spoken. And this is the first movie that lays them out to you. Like this is, and you're like, oh, so you're bringing sure. attention to the yeah. fact you I mean, like, unless you read something like Men Moon and Chainsaws, yeah, you know, which most of us hadn't read at that point. The, the, yeah. <laughs> the kind of theory behind it, or, yeah. or like when you're talking about it, like analytically, and so it's it's exciting when you, they lay that out, and then like you say, they break it, or they. They bend it or they adhere to it. Yeah, or they tell you it and then they show it to you. Yeah. And and like kind of a fun where, you know, you as an audience are even more so being like, don't run up the stairs or look behind you. Like you're even more like it's even, you know, uh, uh, accentuated. Yeah. Those that that fun of the audience being like, don't run up the stairs. You, you know, you just said don't. And I feel like you just did it. This was a movie that back then where you could still have audience in the theaters yelling at the screen to say that kind of, you know, like with the especially with the Drew Barrymore bit at the beginning. And, you know, as the movie goes on, it's it's you could almost see you almost feel like you're kind of a character, uh, you know, uh, on the sidelines in the movie, like trying to vocally tell the 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 characters in the movie what to do and what not to do. Uh, you know, not not that they're going to be able to hear you or whatever. Sure. But, you know, uh, apparently this was a script that you know once they had it, once the the Weinstein's had it, and this was mostly a baby of Bob Weinstein. Yeah. Because uh, he was the one that was really heading up Dimension. Because yeah. they actually got their start once in one first in like concert promoting, but then in movies like The Burning, yeah, from the early '80s, which uh, Dion and I did on our Tom Savini film retrospective when we were <laughs> in a VHS viewing. Oh, you mean we watched? We yeah, didn't cover yeah. it. No, we didn't oh, cover I'm it. But like in our, like in our youth, we had a we had a, an amazing Tom Savini uh, retrospective that we only oddly enough invited ourselves to. <laughs> But we found the burning. We found the uh, the prowler. prowler. Uh, we we were the last maniac. people. Maniac. We were, the, we were the we were the last people to to, to watch that prowler tape because the tape broke in the rewinder. Uh, yeah, maniac. Uh, I think we. I felt like we had another one or two there, but uh, those Probably maybe Day of the Dead. De- yeah, Day of the Dead again. But those, so we were certainly filling out our. Our uh, his catalog we hadn't seen. We were into his the Re- gory effects of the era. Revisiting a few classics and and re- and watching for the first time ones we hadn't seen before. Yeah, and uh, th- they got their start doing that in the burning. Yeah. Great, great movie with what's his face, Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander, and I think Holly. And a score by Rick Wakeman from the band. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and the other guys in it from um, the, he's the voice actor now, but he's in Short Circuit. Johnny Five is alive. You know him. He plays. He plays the Indian. Um, yeah, yeah. The Asian guy in um, in Short Circuit. I think what his name is. I know exactly who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, but he's a prolific voice actor. He does other stuff too. But like he's in it, and I feel like even he did the voice of like there was there was, the, there was another when we lived together in Yonkers many years after that. Many moons. There was when they were dishing out a lot of those comic book. Yeah. The Marvel uh, movies, Marvel and DC, they still are. But this is when it, it, when they only it, it the kind first of first couple. started. And yeah. then you and I started watching a lot of those together. The animated, yeah, movies. And he, I think he did the voice of David Banner. I was going to say he's Bruce Banner. I should say in David the, uh, the in that first Avengers movie. I forget what that's called from two thousand and like 
seven or eight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the Weinstein's, yeah. uh, and so they, they they like okay, we have this interesting script, kind of very uh, aware of itself. Uh, I don't know if meta was really a a term used then, but so they wanted to try to uh, get. You know, they started offering it to filmmakers. They offered it to Wes Craven. Wes Craven turned it down. He was in supposedly developing the remake of The Haunting. Yes. And at the same time, he had, you know, tried to shy away a little bit from by doing like Vampire Brooklyn, trying to get a little bit away from. And just to see, this is another weird thing, too, because when you read about this, like I'm a big fan of Vampire Brooklyn. And that's a movie which I don't think it has even had a proper DVD release. Like it's hard to find. Uh, But it gets cycled a lot on TV, on cable or whatever. But, you know, he does talk about that he was trying to shy away from gore or, or not do it or he was worried yeah. about. There's the notorious urban legend, which I don't know if it's true, but when he watched Reservoir Dogs at Khan, he left during the ear-cutting scene. Oh, yeah, he thought I it was too, that. Yeah, he thought it was too gory. And it's like, you know, it, it, it's, I find it ironic and almost funny because you look at some of the early films that he's done, which, I mean, I can't even watch because they're so, yeah. you know... Um, Last House on the Left is so yeah. completely like yeah, that's paving have, new new ground. Those have eyes, too. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, they're the, pretty brutal. Yeah. yeah, you know, and even even though they're forty years removed, they're still you know pretty f- you know just because of how they're shot, how it looks. Uh, even even when you know it's a movie, it's low budget and it's it's say poorly shot or there's the blood is too red from the seventies. It's still very brutal. So it's I find that funny that later on in his career he's worried about that there's too much violence in this and there's too much stuff. But I guess well, maybe I because he felt like he did it. Yeah, that and I think it comes a little bit comes with maturity. Yeah, you know, even Carpenter says now that you know the infamous scene in Assault on Precinct Thirteen. When the gang member shoots the little girl. Spoiler alert. <laughs> that uh, yeah, it happens pretty early in the movie. Yeah. That he probably would have done that now. I'll There's tell some... you. that We could talk about that down the road, but that scarred me for life. And that's probably because it's so early on in the movie and it's so unexpected. It's really like the MacGuffin of that movie. <laughs> it, and it really grabs the audience. And I think without that kind of a hook... To grab the audience there like that in yeah. such a way, I mean, I of course, you see, is there a difference there between the violence in that and the violence in a movie like Last House on the Left? I don't know, but for me, I find that much more effective because I don't know. Maybe it's not being like glorified. Where Last House on the Left. I'm not saying it's being glorified either, but I feel like there's an argument that could be made where it's like there's a montage of them like putting her cake together because it's her birthday while she's getting raped. You know, it's like it's yeah. like it's it's a lot tougher to watch the level of brutality. But it's also, I mean, Assault and Priesthood 13, I mean, let's not take it down this road. Yeah. But it's also a shock. Yeah, it's shock value. Yeah, it's like nobody would expect that to happen no. in a movie and then all of a sudden it fucking happens. Yeah. Just but anyway, so my point is that like yeah. with maturity, I think... You start to filmmakers, artists start to think, well, maybe like the gratuitousness wasn't necessary. I don't need to do that. And also, by that point, there's a difference between the early '70s of Last House on the Left and now 1996. After you've had an evolution, two of- decades of of a genre that was created by uh, these, you know, these got these filmmakers that has been repeatedly. Uh, criticized for like misogyny 
whether you believe whether you buy into that or not, there's yeah. also certainly an, an element. You know, there was an argument which this movie Scream certainly adheres to, which is the final girl, which is like the like the strongest character is a is a woman. So yeah. how could you argue that these movies are misogynist just because there's a, 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 a male killer stalking women? But at the end of the day, it's a woman who yeah. who survives it. You know who's strong enough to survive it. So there's always there's been all that argument, and also certainly things like sorry to keep on bringing these movies up, but things like A New Nightmare and In the Mouth of Madness are definite comments on this idea of that violence breeds vi- violence in media breeds violence in real life. And you see that happen after uh, the the mass shooting at Columbine. They have. Uh, committee hearings and they cite Scream and they cite other movies and that's nothing new because in the 80s uh, they were worried about Suicide Solution Ozzy's song about you know bringing kids to suicide and yet uh, what's her name? Tippy Tippy Gore, Al Gore's wife, trying to push for extreme censorship in the late nineties, uh, or I'm sorry, late eighties into the nineties, and that goes back to the fifties with the Comic Code and Frederick Wortham trying to say that sure. the comics are causing juvenile delinquency. But then here, it's uh, you know, it's it's and a- also this movie fa- falls into that too because they tried to shoot in Santa Rosa, California, and at a high school, and it was all lined up, but unfortunately. For uh, for all parties, that yeah. there was at that time, recently at that time, a like an abduction and a murder of a little girl, and yeah. so the community was particularly sensitive to violence yeah. and stuff. And so the school board and the commu- and the community of parents came out against it and, and said, "Like we don't want this movie made here, this violent movie." Yeah, you know. So and then after this movie, two two series of murders were committed that the. the Perpetrators said that we watched, we we did it from watching Scream. We got the idea, and we were going to go buy masks and stuff. So, uh, you know, and they started calling that the Scream murders. So it's certainly, it's almost like, um, I think I feel like even Amityville Horror had a little bit of that too. Something happened well, when we did Halloween Two. We talked about how somebody used Halloween Two as a murder defense. Yeah, where it's people see this stuff and then they go out and. You know, and I, I'm I, as I'm getting older, as silly as it sounds, I worry about with media in my old age that people, you know, very young, impressionable people who don't aren't being installed those goals who are sitting in front of a first person shooter game all day yeah. and don't, you know, that that this this could be could, you know, who knows what it's doing to the mind. So I guess that, you know, this kind of a fear could be, you know, conscious or not. So this but all is this all going into Craven. Yeah, this about, is all this is all. <laughs> Roundabout way yeah. of going through the story, how Craven didn't want to do it yeah. initially. And he was already looking at this beautiful, the Robert Wise, uh, Shirley Jackson book, The Haunting or The House on Haunted Hill. He was trying to consider, he was in development of re- doing that. So he turned it down and then opposed, supposedly got uh, Bob Weinstein offered it to Robert Rodriguez and Sam Raimi and even Romero. A number of people and there was this notion that they... Maybe even Peter Boyle too. Not Peter Boyle. <laughs> Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. <laughs> Very different movie, Peter Boyle. Now I do what? <laughs> All right, directorial yeah. debut. Sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Why not? Uh, uh, and allegedly. Where else are you going to hear Peter Boyle impressions on a podcast, right? <laughs> allegedly, the, the thought was that they didn't get it, that they thought it was too much a comedy yeah. and not enough. Uh, of the horror movie, which I who knows what the truth is there. I can't imagine Romero reading this and being like, "Yeah, let's make this a zany horror movie comedy." I could see maybe Sam Raimi 
you offer a movie like this to Sam Raimi, who's coming off of Army of Darkness, you know, and thinking that maybe, and Dark Man, stuff like that, and thinking, okay, maybe I sh- should, and, you know, it's funny cause inject some comedic aspects into this movie. Because you, then you go down the road to what Romero ends up doing, and the last movie, what is that, Survival of the Dead? That's a complete spoof. You know, and that's, you know, I don't, I don't know, you can argue if you find that successful or not, but he certainly goes down that road there with those, with his movies, so. I would imagine they also had to, they had to offer it to Carpenter. Well, they were all being, they were all very busy, too, at the time. I mean, Romero at the time is doing, uh, he just finished uh, the, the one you like uh, from 1990. Uh, with the t- Monkey Shines? No, the one with the, t- with the, with the, 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 the he's a twin. Dark half. Oh, the dark half. He just finished the dark half, and he was working on. Uh, I feel like there's another dead film there, not the not the Savini Night remake, but but you know he's doing that monkey Carp- shine. Monkey shines. <laughs> Carpenter just did in the mouth, and he's you know he's gotten memoirs done, and he was probably looking to do what vampires at that point or body bags, body body bags is I think before that, but. You know, yeah, so Vampires, they're busy. I think, is maybe the next movie. You know. Anyway, so anyway. It... And then I didn't know that The Haunting, the remake, that was uh, it's the unaccredited executive producer, Steven Spielberg, for that. He went to Stephen King, and they were developing, they want to develop a nice haunted house movie because how Steven Spielberg is on the cusp of everything. He's like, we need a good, scary movie. And they, they uh, Stephen King suggests, hey, you know, Shirley Jackson's got this really great movie that Robert Wise did the movie why don't we try to remake that but then they just didn't see eye to eye and he ends up writing Stephen King writes Rose Rose something that ends up being has a lot oh, of yeah, has yeah. A, and that that TV movie ends up being his answer because they kind of go slippery ways and Wes Craven's attached but then he ends up for I don't know what reason dropping out of The Haunting and then that goes to I forget who different in that movie kind of gets bombs yeah, yeah. for a lot of reasons uh and then he's suddenly available to have something to do, and maybe it was maybe he just didn't like the direction that uh, the haunting was going, so but he drops get, out. Things get dropped out, yeah. or you know, there's a number. Of fr- it happens all the time. Just like screenplays get sold and never made in the movies, in development, filmmakers get shuffled around, yeah, and drop out for various reasons, and you know, nobody knows except for those people, yeah, you know? but. Uh, while this is happening, uh, apparently Drew Barrymore becomes very interested yeah. in the project and wants to play the lead role of Sidney Prescott. And this, which means I guess the, the spec script is getting shopped around by the, probably the wine scenes at this point. Yeah, and apparently it's like her being brought on really elevates the idea of this movie including it's one of the reasons why Wes Craven ends up coming back and accepting it. But this is another aspect of, like, I feel like it's rewritten history. Because Drew Barrymore was not a big star. I mean, she was a well-known actress. She had made a little bit of, she had made a comeback in terms of, she had done that Amy Fisher story television movie, which was kind of her big comeback, quote-unquote, at that time. From a tra- from being a child actor in the Who had 80s. disappeared. Yeah. And who had been, you know, labeled, you know, a problem because of alcohol and, and stuff like oh, that. And drug. and yeah, drugs. Yeah. And then she had done, like, Poison Ivy. Yeah. And then she had done a handful of movies of, like, a cameo almost part in Batman, uh, was that Forever? Okay. Yeah. 
she plays like one of the hench, one of the yeah, oh, two face, yeah, yeah two girls, faces girls, and she had not yet done the um, Charlie's Angels yet. Well, that was that's, that was my my point yeah. is you know people talk about the fact that Drew Barrymore came on this movie was like oh my god, but it's like she hadn't made the Wedding Singer yet. Yeah, she hadn't made. Uh, Ever After and Never Been Kissed. Like, those are the movies that really kind of solidified solidified her as so like a, box Green. Off, <laughs> a box off the star. Yeah. But I guess when you get someone big uh, involved with anything, it's like Harvey Keitel getting on board with Reservoir Dogs. It's like, you know, if you get an actor, it's it's a lot easier to sell a picture or get people, other people interested if you have the actors kind of already want to attach. And her, sure. I mean, I just want to, I, I feel like it's important to, point out this stuff because yeah of course you you know you got to put things in context you know she talks about you know when she got wedding singer like what year is that like 97 or 98 okay i was gonna say i feel like it's around this time uh and i could be wrong about this but i believe that the story is like adam sandler wanted to talk to her about being in it and so he came to like the coffee shop she worked in yeah like she was working in a coffee shop. Like yeah. she wasn't a huge star. And it's sad because of the you know the legendary I mean, she was status as a of her, kid of her family because you know, she was a you know ET Firestarter and, and Cat's Eye. Eye. <laughs> but, but but the very problem is she had a problem in the eighties of like you know you see that with a lot of child actors at that time they're thrown into the party scene and so she was doing like cocaine at like ten or eleven years yeah. old. Or, well, she had a mom, and it's was, not her fault. Was very into the, the yeah star child being a, a, a you know. And her, considered her like her own successful career. Yeah, because, supposedly. I mean, the allegedly. lineage of her with Lionel Barrymore and John, you know, the the Barrymores, her family goes back, you know, Ethel years. So, uh, I guess that's a whole sh- big shoes to fill. But by this point now, in the in the in the nineties, she's now getting interested in playing Sydney's character, Lynette Campbell. Character. She initially wants to play Sydney, and everybody seems to be all in, all for it. But then you know, she, she had made a, she had that made that western where she's like oh, uh, the, with the girls with Ballad Stowe. I forget what that movie's called. I mean, she yeah. had she was which that was a kind of a hit with the ladies. She was working. Yeah, you know, she was. I'm not. I'm not going to say like she was a nobody, and she was like, probably on the MTV scene. You know, she, a lot of MTV you know shows. Sure. and stuff. I mean, she was definitely in the cultural yeah. zeitgeist. I mean, she was definitely like a known actress. Yeah, but the, in retrospect. People talk about this casting choice as being like, oh, my God, like we cast Julia Roberts. Yeah. Of the era. <laughs> you know, yeah. of that time. You know, she was she was certainly a well, like a known person, a known actress and a working actress at that time. Yeah. But she wasn't like a big box office star until a year or two later. Yeah. Maybe in a lot of ways. Because of well, I the success if, of this movie. For whatever reason, they say she drops out and she gets the great idea. She decides apparently five to six weeks before they start shooting. She's like, you know what? I don't want to play Sydney. Let me play the opening scene. I want to Janet Lee it. Play me. Let me play it in the. Let me play that first scene. Yeah, and it's it's a stroke of genius in a way because her isn't she the she's the car she's the face on the she's the main face on the yeah. poster. I mean, so people, so they're mistakenly telling people she's going to be the star of the movie. So you don't expect in that opening sequence, you know, spoiler alert, she's going to get murdered. 
Yeah. You know, so But by the time by the time this movie comes out, I mean like Nev Campbell had been in stuff. She was on Party Five, which was a pretty well known yeah. television show. I mean she was a pretty to the craft big name herself. I mean yeah, I'm assuming the craft was before this. Yeah, that she met Skeet Ulrich, the two of them on the craft, and they say that's how they were able to have a level of intimacy because they had known each other prior to that. I think that was right off the heels. She takes that this because this is her first role. The star. She's always like the full lead. Yeah, she's always done an ensemble stuff. So getting Drew Barrymore, I wonder if maybe she was offered the wedding singer around the same time, and she, you know, had to go. You know what I mean? What what the next thing was? Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, there was maybe an element of like she had made a deal because that's a big change from I'm going to play the lead in this movie to I'm going to be in the first scene of your movie, and that's it. But there's also an element of like. She's attached to it. She, maybe her and her uh, management realize the importance of that, what her attachment has done for this movie, to then say, like, you know what? Like, you can still pay us what you were going to pay us. But I'm not going to be the whole but I'm not attached for him. But I'll months. work on the movie for five days. Yeah. <laughs> you, <laughs> out, of tw- yeah out of a 20-day shoot, you'll have me for five days instead of 20. Yeah. You know, it could it could have been that. Who knows the reason? Yeah. Or c- could have been the stroke of brilliance of like, hey, what if I get killed off in the beginning and it will be like Janet Lee and Psycho. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> What's Psycho? <laughs> but I think it is important to talk about this first scene because this first scene has probably become among the most iconic scenes in horror film history, I think, at this point. Yeah. I mean, it is certainly one of the strongest opens. And do you think it's because of that? I mean, do you think it's it's a it was cleverly cleverly disguised because you have if it wasn't Drew Barrymore in the lead, if it was just um Rosanna McGlowan, what's her name? Or Rosanna, not Rosanna, Ro- Rose, not Rose, Rose McGowan. Rose, I'm, I always get her mixed up. Rosanna, Rosanna Barr. Rosanna, how is this? <laughs> ah, she just hangs up. That's the end of your movie. Uh, but like you know, um, if it wasn't someone like, see, this is we're just going back to what we were just saying, though. I mean, if it wasn't her in the, I mean, I think it's a very powerful beginning. I think you get the element of. You know, do you like scary movies? What's your favorite scary movie? It, it's a it's a brilliant opening for a movie. And I think you're right in that speculating, had it not been Drew Barrymore, had it not been her face on the cover or the poster, yeah. the, you know, her, she looks like she's the lead. Would it have had such a big impact? I don't know. Probably not. But I think it still would be considered a really strong and that's opening a, to a movie. It, that's a terrible spoiler, too. My wife tells me that her story was waiting in... England to see this movie in line. They're, they're queued up in line because, you know, it's opening night or whatever. They let out the other audience. And as the girl's walking by, she says, I couldn't believe it was the boyfriend. <laughs> Completely ruins the movie. Yeah, it's yeah. like, what the fuck? You know, it's like, gee, it's like a well, Seinfeld you, episode. Yeah, you know? yeah, you'd see stuff like that all the time with like Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, people you know, like, like parody, like joking about that happening. Yeah. Um, so y- we go back now to. Um, we did rope. I'm sorry. We did rear window last week, and you know the one movie we forgot to bring up as uh, uh, another one of the movies that were done in that style was the the Carpenter TV movie, Someone to Watch oh, Over Me, because yeah, yeah. that's kind of the same thing. But uh, of that era, there's a, the movie that Blake and I love called When a Stranger Calls, the original, sure, with with the great um, Charles Durning, and that has an element where. When I was very little in first grade in Catholic school, I remember people talking about that urban legend about the babysitter, you know, getting the calls. Yeah. Have you checked the children? Yeah, have you checked the children? And I don't know if that is 
if that urban legend's from that movie, or if, or if that, that movie, movie spawned from... the urban legend, or it's like the you know it's the other urban legend with the with the lovers on lovers lane, and they leave, and there's a hook on the side of the car. There was a killer about to kill him. You know, we haven't done research for that movie, but a stranger call. So maybe you know who knows. But chicken also, before the egg. You know, we did. Uh, Black Christmas. And that's prior to... That's that's like 74. That's Black Christmas is 74, and I think When a Stranger Calls is the late 70s as well, because What's-Her-Face is in that too. The girl from Taxi, uh, Andy Kaufman, she plays the opening scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's the, well, she's the known at the time. Which, you know, when we rented it, I remember when we rented it, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen this movie, it's not a huge spoiler. It's just that, like... They made a sequel. I mean, they made well, a reboot. And, but there was just that, like... Oh, yeah, I forgot they did a reboot of that. Yeah, which with, with which Lance I, Henriksen as the voice, <laughs> and I which, haven't seen. Which I think I saw at the movie theater. But uh, you and I rented that, at least I remember renting that movie with you. Yeah. With the, the pretense that that's what this movie was. No, that it was like the, like the, the entire scream. The entire movie was this babysitter being harassed by this call but yeah. like that's really only like the first 10 minutes of that movie. Well, yeah or 10 or 15 minutes and then it's the rest <laughs> then, of the movies the charles Durding <laughs> running around <laughs> taking you know it's <laughs> the rest of that movie is watching that watching the movie and wondering if charles Durding's gonna collapse a heart attack. <laughs> he's just running around <laughs> full speed because he's you know he's a heavier guy at that era of his he's life he's not a spring chicken yeah he's you know i mean he's jumped out of planes we talked about his career in um Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, but but and I always joke too. One I joke with that movie, it's like that was where they discovered the Dobby. Yeah, yeah. There's a sound effect of that movie that sounds exactly like when you would put in a tape, and there'd be like the Dolby surround sound, sound like you hear it on all your speakers. And then the uh, other thing was that like basically that killer goes to jail for his crimes, and I'm not remember. This is we haven't seen this in 20 years. He gets out, and he kind of feels. I feel like he's kind of like trying to stay away from his old haunts and not to go back and. Charles Durden completely makes him reoffend. It's like it's all Charles <laughs> harasses him yeah. into, <laughs> into reoffending. It's all it's just Charles Durden running after him the entire movie to get him. Like you gotta get it back, see. But so stream, but what so, you're saying yeah, is so, that stream takes a convention that was somewhat well known, which especially is, in Black Christmas, a, a, a podcast we've covered here before, where it was that um, you know you you and then you even get that earlier. What's the the Mario Baba movie? Isn't Black? Uh, Black Sabbath, she's getting phone calls to. Oh, yeah, there's a segment of Black Sabbath where she gets a phone, she you know, gets phone call. So that's, you know, that's something new where you have the people calling, making rude calls. Well, or now is the, I, now is, you know, 1996 rolls around and all of a sudden there's. You, you have cordless phones. Like cellular know? phones. And there's cellular Armor. phones. You know, you get the br- big brick cellular phone. Yeah, <laughs> but, but that's starting to be people are, you know, I, I think overseas people already had them for a couple of years, but for some reason America was a little. Late to the game with with cellular phones, at least the people, the average person, and so it was kind of a new thing. That's why in this movie, when you see Skeet Ulrich has a cell phone drop, she's like, "Why do you have a mobile phone?" <laughs> you know, it's like, "What do you mean? Why do you have a sat nav?" You know, he's like, "Everybody has one." Yeah, I don't have a like, ju- no, no, you know, this is 1996. So um, she start Drew Barrymore starts getting these calls, and it's and it's and it's very, very quickly turns into this harassment, and why she doesn't just. Hang up at one point, and just dial nine one one. She never calls to you know. He tells her, "Don't, I'm gonna fucking kill you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's it's. She almost he scares her out of calling, you know. And it becomes this progressive. I guess it's not only that what happens in the course of the scene; it's also the dialogue referencing sure the horror movies. Well, it's which is favorite scary it movie? It does a brilliant I, way. It does a brilliant 
job of setting up this self-aware world of horror. She's like, oh, I, I love horror, so scary movies. I'm about to watch Halloween. You know, the one with the white guy in the white mask that harasses babysitter. Like, she knows. Yeah. And like, whoever's calling her, whoever's on the other line, and she and her, Drew Barrymore's character, they know this world. Yeah. And so instantly, as a film goer who has, you know, as we discussed, seen similar things, but certainly not as, in a big as uh, seemingly as mainstream as Scream felt when it came out. You know, there was this like, okay, like this did it did seem kind of fresh. Yeah. Which is, you know, I think one of the main reasons why this, if not the main reason why this movie made such a big splash and when we had, it came out. we had not seen up until that point when A Stranger Calls and we had not, I yeah. had not seen Black yeah. Christmas. I mean, I think, know. I think there were a lot of people of our generation that had, yeah. but there were a lot of people that hadn't I feel like you gone had to as be deep, a, yeah. deep cuts. You, you had know? to really, <clears throat> you know, being of the video store generation, you really had to be well versed in the in the horror movie like genre. Like I had seen Halloween yeah. by then. And I'd seen, the you know, I, I'd probably gone to the second tier of horror movies. I'd yeah. seen the dead films. And you were I'd a seen, big Friday the 13th fan. And yeah, and I mean, I was a big horror fan growing up. So, like, I'd seen a lot of the Romero catalog, a lot of the Carpenter catalog. But then these one-offs that you don't hear about until you get older that, like, you know, when a stranger calls wasn't like, by a You're kind of like, maybe you've heard of it, but and you might know the box. Yeah, but you never. From the video you know, store. But, but even never, the box is frightening. <laughs> but because you never rented it. It's sitting there covered in a layer of dust, and you're kind of like, oh, my God, that's even too scary even you know our i think childhood was kind of splattered with the mainstream freddy krueger mike myers that yeah. you know or even the candy man or we you had know. like the rock stars of yeah horror so you don't you know you're not unless someone's actively showing you those b-sides those deeper cuts in the, or until you get to an age where you want to start probing yourself uh, you know, so these concepts I mean, we relatively were, new. When to this me. movie came out, we were technically like just of the age of where like we really were finally allowed to rent these kind of movies. Sure, yeah. we did sometimes. Our parents would rent them. But video stores, like if you weren't seventeen, no, they technically yeah. you weren't allowed to rent it. And some places were more strict than others. Yeah. Because they didn't want to get in trouble. So, you, yeah, you couldn't rent anything over PG or PG-13 or something. You know, many of us got around that, either, either being on cable or HBO or, like you said, like your parents renting it or talking your parents into renting yeah. something. Or an older friend's older it. brother. You know, we had to get Martin's older brother to rent us Child's Play 2. You know, it's like so there was a way around. It's like getting back in the day porno mags. You know? But this opening is... You know, it, it sets up the, the 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 idea of the movie kind of brilliantly, and it's extremely well done. It's action packed, and one thing that I noticed this time around, because I haven't watched this movie in, in ages either, is um, at the end of the scene, like I feel like the real tragedy of it is played up in a way that most horror movies beforehand probably wouldn't have played it up. The music is done by a composer named Marco Beltrami who had become the go-to guy for like Miramax movies. You know, he did like Mimic and then his his music is the music that eventually replaces a lot of the music in in Halloween H2O because they weren't they didn't love the music that uh the guy who, unfortunately, his name's escaping me, but somebody had scored H2O a couple years later, or, yeah, in 98, and they didn't love that music, so 
I'm still trying to get to the bottom of whether Marco Beltrami wrote music for H2O or they just recycled music from Scream. Anyway, Marco Beltrami became like the Miramax guy. And probably because of the success of this movie. And now he's gone on to do like the music for Logan, the Wolverine movie, and the one before that, the Wolverine. Not the the Japanese one, yeah, not yeah. the first one, but the second one. Love those movies. And so he's and he did the he did the music for the first Resident Evil. Oh, Logan wasn't nominated is a crying <laughs> shame. That's all he, I'm gonna say. He's become a, a a really big deal. But when he did Scream, one thing that I noticed uh, in this viewing is when she runs away, and then she like sees her parents pull up. Yeah, and she's running towards her parents, and she gets caught and stabbed and then her parents walk in and she hears her the mother hears her on the phone yeah like the music takes a very dramatic turn yeah and we get away from the stereotypical like horror intense suspenseful type music and i found that like, it worked brilliantly i mean I'm, I'm i'm obviously more sensitive to it now that i've, I've spent i've now spent years kind of <laughs> studying film music because uh, for my book and stuff uh but i felt like it it gave it a depth and like a gravitas that a lot of horror movies hadn't done before or, or might that. not would have chosen to do that well even at yeah. that time wouldn't have chosen to do and i think by doing that it made that opening scene even more powerful because yeah. had you just stuck with the horror movie music it would have felt it would have it would have been impactful and it would have worked for what it was but by then having the music go kind of dramatic it plays up kind of the real life trauma tragedy of the yeah. fact that this young life is taken and is about to be discovered horribly yeah in like the most unimaginable way by her parents seconds later of like she's hanging from a tree with her intestines like falling out yeah it 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 takes it and it makes it in a way more real yeah and plays up like okay this scene was fun in games this movie's going to be fun in games but in a way, there's like real life stakes to it. Like the reality of the, the consequences of the action. Yeah. Yeah, I felt th- th- he comes in and scores this movie. He had never scored horror before, so he scored it. He said kind of like approaching it like a Sergio Leone Western Yeah, was his idea to come around and, and add elements in. Uh, it, it certainly feels like the, the, the music when he puts it in is there, like you're saying, for is in being interjected where you need the scare or whatever. And I certainly agree. This scene here, it kind of takes a step back and you have it be a kind of a grounding. The silliness is kind of gone. And then the impact of what's happened is there with the parents listening and her barely alive being dragged across the grass and all that. And certainly that could have been cut from the film to make it go quicker. You didn't need that, but it adds to the level that this is real. It gives and this weight is, to it. Yeah, where where I feel like maybe another filmmaker or a composer wouldn't because, um, you know, it to me it does feel like his, the, the some elements of the soundtrack of this are place, like place settings, like insert scary music here, sure, you know, to yeah. get the mute, to get the story going when it needs to go. This, for me also, almost as big or bigger than this movie was the soundtrack to this movie. Yeah. And I don't mean songs. Yes. Yeah. And I think they also maybe released a, the, the score, but the soundtrack, the uh, red right hand by Nick cave, I think did, does that. And then the re uh, redo or the, the cover of don't fear the weep reaper mm-hmm. were huge. The weeper, the weeper, <laughs> don't fear the weeper. That's the Elmer foot album. <laughs> wow. 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 Has come. <laughs> Mommy, you went to Juliet. 
<laughs> to get a win eternity. So take my hand. <laughs> Don't fear to weep. Um, we're going to look out of... Which, it's worth noting that it's... Don't Fear the Reaper by Bloyer Sokol, the original one, is one of the only, if not the only, actual popular song in Halloween. Yeah, they're in the car, right? Yeah. They're driving. Yeah. And uh, and it's, I mean, they were so proud of the red right hand that they used that fucker twice in this movie. You know I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they, you like know, we paid for it. Yeah. We're using it. Every scene, you know, and that was a great, I had that cut. There, I, I, forget, I have to go back and look at the soundtrack because there's a couple other songs that I didn't recognize in the movie that I remember really liking. The, I mean, this was an era which, if, when we get down to these era of movies that soundtracks were huge. I mean, Reservoir Dogs, Get Shorty, Casino, uh, Pulp Fiction, you know. Uh, sure. These, this was the era, the, the, cr- the craft, the crow. These were the era of, yeah, yeah. of kids I having I feel like CDs. that started to happen in the 80s more, like the song track. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, things well, like Batman Color the- of Money. Uh, Scorsese obviously had yeah. always used. Yeah, he always did that. Music. But I don't realize. I don't think like because uh, like uh, he wouldn't get a release. Like you know, you wouldn't get the st- like. There were in the eighties. It started to happen because you had like the Big Chill, which well, was a big yeah. soundtrack, and then that was huge. The big Color chill. Money was big because it had that Clapton song that was big, and that yeah. and that soundtrack was produced by. Robbie Robertson of the band. So yeah. Like, it's in the way that you yeah, use it. You know, but like earlier prior to that, you know, Scorsese and of stuff. Back to the Future. Yeah. Had like the, the power <laughs> of love. But prior to that, you wouldn't get like Scorsese using the shit out of the stones and like Mean Streets. That wouldn't necessitate yeah, yeah. a release. But uh, yeah, my mom had the big chill cassette tape in the car. The, the, starting almost with the big chill and then like, you know, Risky Business and all these so, so using your, you know, power love and all that. Sure. Certainly by the late 80s. Yeah, uh, you know, oh, you know, you're getting almost that that um, Lost nostalgic. Boys. Lost Boys was a big soundtrack. That was a big soundtrack too, and and uh, you know, and and then it co- it kind of went uh, hand in hand with the glam metal era of like you know by the time of '92 when you get like Terminator Two with coincides with the Use Your Illusion Guns N' Roses albums coming out. It's like yeah, oh sure, well even know, hard movie, well uh, Maximum Overdrive, Maximum Overdrive, AC/DC, ACDC stuff, yeah. And then in the 80s, you have like that cross section of heavy metal and horror. So you have actual, not just soundtracks that are coming out like Black Roses. Alice Cooper with uh, Jason. Oh, uh, yes. Jason Lives. Songs or Dokken with Dream Warriors. But uh, you get like whole hair metal bands for doing whole soundtracks like Trick or Treat, uh, stuff like that. Or even Queen. Oh, and yeah, like well, you know, but but, but but they also scored the movie. Yeah, but they would actually. But in the certainly 80, do songs. Certainly, I think the MTV generation of you, you're going to get yourself a music video that it's going to actually help promote that yeah. album or song. So, but certainly the '90s, you're right. Yeah, that period of like the early '90s, probably in a large part due to Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, and that's like, different, I think, from the '80s of having a soundtrack of music that's a, well, maybe not. We're, we're there's like the big chill is just a it's a best collection of like f- good great songs on an album. Yeah. Or by the '90s, it's it's that's it's the, that's kind of the same thing too. Cocktail. Yeah. Big, well, yeah. You know, it's like dancing. you get the movie, you get the songs <laughs> that are written like for the Lost Boys soundtrack. Yeah. But then, like by the '90s with Tarantino, you're getting the um, you know, you're getting the uh, you know, he's he's doing all these great songs you hadn't sure. heard before. So I yeah, guess, before that, you're right. There's kind of a combination of the new hit. 
or a song written for the movie, and then some other songs that are in the movie. Like Cocktail had like Aruba, Jamaica, Jamaica. <laughs> oh, I wanna, yeah, which that's... was probably not written for Cocktail, but it was like because of that soundtrack, that song became a huge hit. Is that is that Beach Boys? That's the Beach Boys. But is that yeah. that's is, that's not that's them that era? That's not like an older song. That... No, that's them that era. Oh, that yeah, because then even Echo and the Buddy Man do the Doors cover strange uh, people are strange for a lot. So you get. Like Scream, you get like a cover of Don't Fear the Reaper on here. And, and Red Right Hand is probably, I don't know, my Nick Cave, I don't know if that was written in correlation coming out. But like look at The Crow. The Crow has one of the best Stone Temple Pilot songs, but you can only get that song if you picked up The Crow album. Sure, yeah. So they Judgment write- Night was the whole concept of the soundtrack for Judgment Night was like duets. Like team ups, yeah, of like a rock and a rapper, yeah, you know stuff. And so I've always been kind of fond of that one too. So there's tons of you know Tom Waits, Eric Clapton. You get guys who would just shit out a song, "See a Love" for the "See a Love" movie, doing a cover of that older older song. Or Clapton did all the great songs uh, for the Lethal Weapon movies, this, especially the second and the third one. Yeah. The second well, he also one, scored that I had to with, say it, it, probably me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He scored that with Michael Kamen. But then you know we talked about soundtracks. With Wayne's World, yeah, which was like '92. So when you're getting to that point, and then that's also them doing songs as well as them having people come on or them getting "Feed My Frankenstein." So by this time, this coming out, this was a huge sound. You know, you get your CD, you put it in your your disc man, you put that disc man on the anti skip. You wait for ten <laughs> or fifteen seconds for it to get up to it not being able to skip, and then you'd walk around, and then in about two minutes, it starts skipping again. You have to wait. <laughs> 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 you have to wait for that son of a bitch to so. My point is, getting back to the the score, it it for me there there's certain areas where it is kind of place place settings, yeah, where it's yeah. insert this here or this there or, or it's this is the scary bit, but then there's other scenes I mean, I think where that, unfortunately I think that's just inevitable. Yeah, with a lot of horror movies. Sure, there's a certain style of music that is appropriate and expected. Yeah, you know, there was a, another thing which is it's you know it's not directly on topic, but it's you know, kind of related in that we're talking about the music. One thing, again, I'm particularly sensitive to this kind of stuff these days, is when we are with Sydney in the house towards the beginning of the movie, and it's like she's waiting because her friend's going to come, Rose McGowan's going to pick her up at seven. Yeah. You know, and her dad's has left. And she comes home. It's like when she first gets the call. Like even before that. And she goes, she's in the house and she goes to the closet and I thought it was really weird that they played up the music takes this very like ominous horror movie tone when she goes to the closet, even though nothing has been presented yet that she she should be in danger other than the fact. We haven't made a connection between the killer and her yet, but they play the tone up like someone's going to be hiding in the closet yeah. to try to like get her. Like and all then, of a sudden it's going to be like. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's just this very subtle music change. Saying American that, Werewolf like, in London, <laughs> like warning us as the as the audience that the closet is dangerous. Yeah, and then later in that scene, she takes a nap. You know, she wakes up. She dark call, out. Her, she calls her friend. Calls her friend's gonna be like. Then she gets the call and she goes to the front door. She goes outside. I'm gonna call your bluff. Yeah. and she comes back and closes the door. And the killer comes out of the closet. Oh. it was like foreshadowing. Yeah, the fact that the closet is dangerous, which is totally was totally not necessary. Yeah, and. But it's interesting. I don't think most people would have even realized it. It would have made a connection, or if it even mattered that the audience knew that the was tipped off ahead of time that the uh, that the closet was particularly dangerous. But it is was certainly an interesting thing that I picked up on yeah. this time, because you know I, I have in 
having written the book and done the podcast and, and now re- working on a second book, I'm like, I'm very much obsessed with the way music functions in movies, not just the creation of it, but how it works within the context of the movie and all the various aspects of you can do, like something as seemingly easy as we're talking about with this uh, and this opening scene with Drew Barrymore of just like it's the music that makes that turn of to give weight to that scene yeah to cue the audience of like holy shit like this it went from being like this fun horror movie to being like man like this is rough yeah you know the tragedy of like she's on the phone with her she can her mom can hear her and she's being stabbed well even the even when the initial call comes in and it's it's kind of just like she's flirting with it yeah and then when it gets like, I'm looking you know, at yeah. you right now. And then he's always like, don't fucking, I'm gonna fucking, And it's like, you know, it's, I'm fucking, I'm fucking, you know, and it's like, the music plays into her, you know, that adds yeah, into yeah. the level of like pushing us in that, oh, this is not, because if you, if you took that out and you put like a Danny Elfman, down, 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 you know, you, you have a completely yeah. different effect. So you know? it's just these little things that I picked up on that I think are, are maybe interesting the next time you watch it, see if you can, or any movie, yeah. or especially horror movies, to, to see if like, you know, pay attention to the music and see how how it's working because it works in very many different ways. Certainly, I, I always are fascinated by the diegetic and non-diegetic sounds, yeah. which we talked which about last week. Which this movie does too. Yeah, because we have the, the just, Halloween. Oh, yes, yeah, we have that basically yeah. that last act, a third act, in, in in a lot of ways is scored by John Carpenter's score for Halloween because it's on. because it's playing on the television. Yeah, so certainly when Skeet Ulrich is looking for her and she's disappeared. In the house or whatever, and he, yeah, and he's like looking, <laughs> opening doors. I was like, "What is this?" And I was like, "Oh, it's this. It's it is, you know, the the John Carpenter score because the, someone had paused the movie or something." Yeah, yeah. And they, and they Randy was it. watching it. Yeah, yeah, and they reference it. Um, so while they're scouting locations for this, they're they're talking about shooting in Canada or shooting in South Carolina, and then uh, I guess even though it'd be cheaper to shoot in Canada. Carpenter's like, I want it to look as American Craven. as possible. I say like, Carpenter Craven. Wes, Wes is like, I want to shoot it in America to have it have a real American kind of feel. Yeah. But they pick like the most beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I know, Vista view. Vista. It's, it's the upper class <laughs> of America. 90% of America don't have a house that look big. like that. So they, Wine country of Northern California. Yeah. With this beautiful like sea, sea oceanscape. So when they're scouting locations, they're looking at this house, and it's a it's a house that I guess they end up using in the end of the movie, where it's Matthew Lillard's house, the family house, and um, th- on that same block is I guess the the house where they they filmed uh, Cujo, and across the street is the house where they used the 1960s movie Pollyanna, the Disney movie, which we brought up on the Pee Wee Herman podcast, but also I think either it's the same house as Pollyanna or it's it's the house next door is they shot Alfred Hitchcock's shadow of a doubt in it. Yeah. No, the, yeah, there's the house and then across the street is the Pollyanna house. So uh, the house they use in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then around the corner is the house that Alfred, Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock used, at least as, as the exteriors for a shadow of a for doubt. shadow of doubt. Which and we, we talked about last week. So when they go inside that house to look at the house, Scout because the I guess house. people just let, Oh, come on in. You're scouting out. Location. I would imagine in California. Yeah. Especially most- if you know, the house has already been used. Yeah. You know, you know, Oh yeah, sure. You know, if you want to, we can use it again, maybe. So they, they let him in. And I guess while they're in the shadow of a doubt house is when they see the mask, they take a bunch of pictures, which location scouts, scouts do. Yeah. 
they take a bunch of pictures and inside, I guess what was like her 20 year old. Yeah. The kid went off to college and, yeah. the, and it was still his room. So they were looking at rooms and uh, up on the, on the banister, on the stairs or either in his room. Yeah. It was like he on, had the this bed, mask. on the bedpost. There was uh, the ghost face mask. Yeah. Cause they were trying to figure out, okay, in the script, it just said ghost face. Yeah. But or did is, it, did it say that or it just said mask? I think it said ghost face. Okay. Because even I think Rose McGowan calls him Ghostface at some point, maybe in the garage. Yeah. And I think in the script it says Ghostface, and then so they're like, okay, well, what does that mean? It's very ambiguous. So they have, uh, you know. uh, They have a conceptual artist try to draw stuff. And some of the guys from K&B, you know. Nick, Nick. uh, Yeah, I don't know if Nick Terra was doing it, but. Burger Howard Burgers, maybe is his name. Yeah. yeah, I know he's been interviewed talking about it. So they're trying to come up, and they're coming up with all these ideas for uh, what the mask could be. And then they see this mask in this room, and so they take it to Bob. The picture to Bob Weinstein is like, we like this mask, and then they're like, well, we don't own that. So see if you could come up with something that's like that, but not that. And then inevitably, I I would imagine that they just end up licensing it or something. Well, they they end up. Um this is a mask that had just come out by Fun World like a couple of years later because we were familiar with the mask. It had been, you know, around and I forgot for what purpose, but people, you know, for Halloween and stuff, like people were wearing it. Uh, so it was kind of in the psyche uh, within the last two or three years of the American audience, at least. And then they take the mask and they start having um, KMB effects guys try to do variants on the mask to try to get it far enough away so that they don't have to license the mask from the fun world. But then all the different editions, they they can't get it down to the same look. So finally, uh, begrudgingly, I guess, um, the, the Weinsteins agree, they go to fun world and they, 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 are, they license or they gain permission to get them to use the mask. Uh, that that mask and they make a variation. I think they make it a little longer looking, or they make it a little slightly different. But it's they have to get permission because it's so close to the damn mask they originally found. Yeah. And then they have to figure out what they want the guy to wear. Because this is another thing too. Because I don't find the killer all that scary. That goes back to the idea of he's kind of like a bumbling. Yeah. Ah, he's getting hurt. He's falling. You know. I never found the. I understand they they were thinking of putting him in white, but then they were worried he'd look like you know Klansman. <laughs> Uh, but when you put them in black and they add a little kind of a sparkle to have it have a little kind of a, a dimension to it when it's being filmed, uh, I understand what it's going to. But it never got like you know. I get it's. it's I guess it's someone's taste. As, it's certainly not as intimidating as like Jason. Yeah, or or Michael Myers. Yeah. Although the Michael Myers is just in a mechanic outfit and Jason's just in like you know army fatigue, say sometimes. But. I guess if you have a guy actually coming at you, you know, it's going to be intimidating no matter what the hell it is. You know what <laughs> I mean? Just like anything. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so they end up getting the mask and they, they figure it all out. And they also figure out because it, part of this movie is a mystery, yeah. which some slasher movies aren't, like Halloween, you know who it is. Um, and since we're, they're going to see him most of, often in broad daylight, yeah, they needed to really cover the killer from head to toe because it really the idea is like it could be anybody, yeah. And also, as we find out later in the movie, it's two, it's more and, than one. And person. I remember that being in the movies. You know, you don't know is it Henry Winkler, the principal? You know, they, they did give you a level of a little uh, bit of a red hair, yeah, of who it is. And, and me being seventeen or eighteen when I saw it, I was still kind of like, oh, I don't know who it is. You're trying to figure it out, and then at the end, it ends up being kind of like a. Uh, 
spoiler, like like a little more murder on the Orient Express, where it's like kind of everybody, you know, everybody's kind of involved. <laughs> the two guys are. It's, yeah. It has that kind of rope. It's two two people, and that kind of I guess when you go back with that knowledge and watch the movie, you could figure out who is who. You also you I know. kind of re- noticed that watching it this time around that sometimes you can. Like the when he's getting the crap kicked out of him, you like, could tell it's Matthew Lillard. That's yeah, Matthew yeah, Lillard's yeah. voice. You know, like, uh, uh, yeah. like they clearly dubbed in, which they didn't have to do, but it does sound like yeah, it, I, I whether agree they with did you. or not. Yeah, you know, especially yeah, the, when he's getting beat or hurt. You know, uh, and I feel like, like I said, that's a conscious decision for them. They really take a pummeling. Like it's like Bruce Willis getting the crap kicked out of him in those action movies. Well, yeah, it's certainly you know it's empowering to the, but to it doesn't the, make to the, the audience who's associating with. The kids in the movie, yeah, uh, it uh, it adds a little bit of a, I feel like a little bit of a element of realism. Sometimes yeah. it's a little extreme, like she slides under his thing or the, you know, the freezer door. It seems like that seems those some of those things seem more like movie things, but like it would not be as cut and dry. Yeah, you know, for lack of well, they're not they're not as infallible <laughs> as like a little a, bit of a pun, I guess. You know, there is as the as a as a zombie killer like a Mike Myers or a Jason. Yeah, Voorhees, like they are know. just human. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you get that you you ha- have that, and then you you don't know where you know, and then you get to the voice, yeah. and the voice. I always at the end of the movie when I figured out it wasn't the guy, I always. Personally, I always felt like that was a letdown. I always thought yeah, that even back they then. A little bit. Yeah, that it's a, and I think it's perfect because it does add to the level. Oh, it could be anybody. I get that point, but I, I thought the guys, what's his name, Roger Jackson, is the voiceover artist. Yeah, that they ended up using. Like I, I loved his voice so much. It almost had an air of um, what's his face, uh, uh, the legendary actor, voice actor who died, who used to do everything. Uh, Don something, uh, you know, you, you know, he like from Dimension Films. Uh, oh you know, yeah, yeah. You know what's yeah. his name? I, I forget his name, and he passed away. Um, yeah, the, they you know, the year is two thousand five. The Autobots. You know, he did all the Transformers the stuff. Of God or whatever. Don, yeah, he had a yeah, nickname. The, yeah, the Don. Uh, well, anyway. It had that element to it. So at the end, when you find out it's just a voice ba- box, I yeah. almost felt that was me personally, which is, you know, it's just my own thing. I always thought it was too much of a cheat. Like, that's not fair. You, you, you cheated, you know, yeah. che- you know. But, I mean, the the voice is iconic, and they originally just got it, I guess, to just have it as a temp track, and they were going to dub in something else later. Well, yeah, because apparently they had him on set. And he didn't, and it was like the Warriors, you know, that were, they, they didn't, they never had the movie where they never had him meet. Yeah, you know them. They so had they had rigged the phones so that he'd actually—it was a real phone—and that he would actually be talking to the actors over the phone. And so they hired him to do that, which I would imagine that they had to have had at least a little bit of a sense that they were probably going to use him. I don't feel like they wouldn't have done that if yeah. they really felt like they were going to overdub it with somebody else. I know. I feel that's odd too that that they they but, got him. But things change in that. Like, it's, what's that movie with Paul Walker and? Steve Zahn, the truck is like there, candy cane. Oh, um, that's um, yeah, I know that. But movie. if you watch the if you watch the special features on that DVD when it came out, they had like expert ex- excerpts of those scenes with Eric Roberts was originally going to be. Oh, the I've voice. heard. Yeah, I heard they had different guys, and it ends up being what's his face, whose voice is brilliant. Yeah, who's the guy from uh, uh, Buffalo Bill? Yeah. he's in, and he's also in Heat. He's the in Mangler. Uh, I think he might even be <laughs> the, the, in Monk too. But uh, what the hell is the name of that movie? Um, the truck movie. But anyway, but yeah, but they, they, and that's what they do in the remake of, 
I think they do that, right? In the remake of When a Stranger Calls, they have Lance Henriksen play the voice, and it ends up not being like once you had this movie have it happen, you could you can end up doing that now. I always thought that was a good voice because it was also a voice that I thought even when Screams. I Screams voice, yeah. even when I saw it, it was like you could see Joyride, right? Joyride, Joyride, yeah. yeah. That there was it wasn't that far of a stretch from Henry Winkler. Yeah. You know, like you could almost see Henry Winkler putting on a voice like that, and also I think going back to what we said in the beginning of the, what I was talking about in the beginning of the of this podcast, which is that like this was a big entry gateway movie for uh, people of a younger generation than us, which I think think they get they I'm not sure they would get the reference, but for our generation and certainly generations older than us. It was kind of fun to see the Fonz. <laughs> I know, and, and that's why I remember specifically in the horror in the movie, the, seeing it in the theater. If it was the fun, the red herring is the Fonz doing the killings. For some, at some point in the movie, I felt like there's a scene there where he, it could be him. Well, he's he's got the yeah, the he, night, he yeah. hates the kids. He's, yeah, he's all, he's very it's almost too much. Yeah, you know? he's it's over. Like, Those fucking well, kids. the whole movie's <laughs> almost over the top, and then I mean, and then him, you know, with the with the with the bell, and then him, you know, him making the announcements are kind of crazy. I mean, it's it, it goes to that very, like, grease, kind of, like, crazy, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 for a minute, I did suspect him at, to be oh, I remember even when I saw it, there was, like, certainly you felt like they were trying to get you yeah. to do it, whether you, you went that way or not. Uh, God bless the Fonz. And then I realized, so, Lieb Schreiber, who plays uh, Cotton, yeah, the Cotton person Leary. who supposedly killed her mother, raped and killed uh, Nev Campbell's mother, uh, I forget in, in, in the history of if he was a huge name at the time. I don't think so. Because he comes in as a cameo here, and then I don't – these all blur into one to me. He's in the second one, and the last – and then is it the spo- – these are all spoiler alerts. Is that – the third one is when he's killed right at the beginning? I think so. Okay, because that's the last one I've seen. I remember regretting that from the video store. So he he – he gets a release from jail, I guess, in the second one, and then he's in the complete second one. And, and then he becomes the... famous for it. Oh, he writes okay. a book or something. Oh, in the movie, not yeah. Sh- okay, because Leif Schreiber. I mean, at the he time... was in some indie stuff. Yeah, but I think this was the first movie that I recognized him because then I remember seeing him in other things. I was like, oh, that's the guy in One Shot of Scream. Yeah, or, or he's like in RKO two two eighty one playing. Like he was in Orson Welles. Yeah, but I don't think. He was particularly well known, and now he's everywhere. This. He's voiceover, like fifty yeah, percent of voiceovers. That show, uh, like Showtime. Oh yeah, he has that one too. You're right. He has that. Big. And he did the voice of Kingpin yeah. and Spider-Man Back to the or yeah. Spider Verse. Well, he does a lot of like A and E, or he's like Keith David for you PBS. A lot of stuff, you know. So yeah, I recognized him, and I was like, oh, what the hell is he doing here? And then yeah. you didn't see him again. I had completely forgotten well, him in it. One thing I do want to bring up, bef- you know, as as we start to wind down is uh, only because this was something that was brought to us by a listener, Tobias Ellis. Toby, I'm, I'm assuming Toby yeah. Ellis, a, a long time ago, messaged us on Facebook, direct messaged us with a link to a, 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 a YouTube video where somebody interviews and talks to a guy named uh, Ralph uh, Kinevsky. Mm-hmm. Who at age nineteen in nineteen eighty nine made a movie called uh, "There's Nothing Out There," which some claim allegedly that maybe Scream rips off. Oh really? Oh really? <laughs> he makes a he makes a, a feature length movie, and like I said, at age nineteen in nineteen eighty nine, uh, for a hundred thousand dollars, where 
the characters within the movie, it seems it's, I, I have never seen the whole movie, but the clips that you see in this video on YouTube, uh, you can certainly look up. I'm sure if you look up, there's nothing out there or like movie that Scream ripped off. If you go, well, maybe we that. can find it. Yeah, can, maybe we can find it. We'll put a link in. Include a link on the site. <clears throat> but it's, uh, there's a certainly a, a, a specific, very specific character in the movie named Mike, who's kind of, you can see uh, people making correlations to the Randy character, the Jamie Carrey Kennedy character, where he's a big horror fan. And it seems to me that he's with a group of friends driving to maybe a cabin in the woods. No pun intended. And he's pointing out that, like, all the horror tropes and the rules of horror movies. And apparently, uh, this guy, uh, Ralph, takes the movie to the independent feature project uh, in New York City, which just might have been how, like, Clerks got. Sold, okay. Which is like you can enter your movie, and it's kind of a marketing thing, and it's a way for distributors to come and look at independent projects, and possibly buy them. And apparently, it was you know the darling of the. I'm not gonna. It's not really a festival, but for lack of a better term, the kind of this kind of festival in New York at the, that year, and Stephen so much so that he gets a call from the makers of Child's Play Three. So they're like, we're making Child's Play 3, and we're looking for a director. We've heard about your movie. Can we see a copy of your movie? And uh, so it seems like this 19-year-old kid who made this low-budget slasher movie that's, you know, very uh, quirky and, you know, again, meta, What everything that Scream kind of becomes hailed for. Though when you watch the clips, it's certainly... <laughs> You know, certainly not as polished yeah, yeah. as Scream becomes. But uh, it could be a basis for maybe an inspiration. Yeah, supposedly the story goes that uh, basically then in the, in the early 90s, like 1990, the horror movie market crashes. Yeah. You get Tremors, which didn't really do all that well. You get Nightbreed that doesn't really do all that well. Everything that we were talking about earlier in this podcast about how the 90s are thought of as being a very bad time for horror. Yeah. Whether that's true or not, certainly they weren't making as much money as they used to. Even the later installments of popular franchises weren't as successful as the previous installments had been. And all of a sudden people, uh, studios apparently are afraid to market a, how are they going to market a horror movie? And so, unfortunately, this kid's movie gets kind of put to the side. He ends up doing, like, a small run, gets a weekend of screenings in New York, which happened on uh, on uh, Super Bowl Sunday, on oh. a weekend where there's a blizzard. Oh. And then it gets a weekend of – it gets some screenings in L.A. at the time that the L.A. riots start. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so this kid's movie kind of – disappears into obscurity and apparently so he says at some point he sh- he he meets Wes Craven's son Jonathan I think his name is and shows him the movie and Wes Craven's son likes it a lot who I guess is trying to start producing movies himself and he likes it a lot and says he's going to show it to his dad and then he never hears anything about it and then a couple years after that scream comes out that's his story that's that's this Ralph uh, Kanefsky's story. So I think it was worth the, the little clip is interesting. I think the movie looks worth watching. It looks like that movie's probably either a little bit too early 
or a little bit too late. Yeah. You know, we're saying that, like, scream hit at the right time. Uh, who knows what the truth is? Certainly when you hear how Craven turned this movie down a few times, that, you know, Ralph's Konefsky's story seems just like a, a really bad coincidence. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. why wouldn't he have already had the idea if he had seen it by But uh, you hear these kinds of stories, and since uh, Certainly worth this was up. brought to our attention from a listener... And certainly bias. very interesting. I thought it was worth mentioning. On the yeah, show. of course. So um, thank you, Toby, for Tobias. Uh, I, it's, and you could tell it's the efficacy of phones, too, because then when he drops the cell phone, all she has to do is just pick the phone up and look at the dial <laughs> yeah, calls. Because call. <laughs> you know, they're waiting for the phone records, you know. But now it's in the old days, you can even look at your look at your missed calls or look at your dial calls or, you know, your call list. So, uh, And then there's a ton of... I guess we should. There's two cameos. There's the uh, Wes Craven cameo as it looks like Freddy, <laughs> you know, Fred Krueger. Yeah, um, that you, Fred. <laughs> and then there's the Linda Blair cameo, which I didn't know until I was made aware of, and then I saw. I was like, oh, look, it's Linda Blair. Yeah, playing one of uh, one of the rep- many reporters in this outside the school. Yeah, and then uh, there's tons of what ifs. So I was in this like, Dan, 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 look, look, Dan, look, Dan, look, Dan, look Dan, at this. Tell your mom to go upstairs and look at this. <laughs> look at this. And there's a, there's tons of what ifs. I mean, they had everybody like Ben Affleck. Uh, 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 Joaquin Phoenix, a, a lot of people coming in. Molly Wing, Ringwald, people looking to, to to get into this. Uh, even what's her face from Showgirls, but then because of Showgirls and Berkeley, yeah, a lot of people were considered, or they were thinking about, or they were. Brecken Meyer as Randy was considered. Yeah, uh, Melissa Clark, Miss Melissa, uh, Mar, Mar, uh, you know. Uh, Rebecca Gayhart. Yeah, you know, uh, tons of tons of other people, and uh, some of these people end up you end up seeing in things like Urban Legend or some of these. Yeah, some of the other the ones. Fact. You know, that they, they end up you know they end up trying out for this, and then they end up being in like the not the copies, but I guess the other movies that do uh, genre things at the time. So it comes out at Christmas time, and. Uh, it doesn't do well really at first week or so when people kind of write it off as a flop, but then because of word of mouth, it becomes this huge, th- this staying thing. Kind of snowballs, it, yeah. And it's weird because it's around like, uh, you know, Mars Attacks. Um, I think it was Independence Days out this year. Uh, maybe Jerry Maguire. So like Beavis and Butthead do America, which is a movie I haven't thought about in <laughs> probably since that movie came out. That, it's had a great soundtrack. Yeah, and that, that, that came out number one that, I think it was that weekend, and Scream came in number two, and then it started to do, like, you know, some pretty good business. And then it became this classic, and it became a hit. And like we said, it then, you know, it necessitates uh, three sequels, so there's four movies all together. I think, yeah, there's four. There's one that's kind of recent. Yeah, from which like, has Emma Roberts, which I remember I saw. I think I probably saw them all at the movies, including the last one. And then there was an MTV television show, which yeah. was not – it was more taking this concept and running with it. It's not a direct connection to the movie. Like, it's yeah. not a sequel to the sh- to the movie. Yeah. It's more of taking this idea of Scream and making a whole television show, which I think only got two seasons. But I watched it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Uh, Brooke Shields, Janine Garofalo. Uh, we should say Courtney Cox looks great in this movie. I, uh, you know, uh, I'm not a big Friends fan. Maybe in later in life, I I end up will be. But you know, I think she looked gorgeous in like Ace Ventura: Pet Detective. Yeah. You know, and she's of course in Masters of the Universe, which we covered <laughs> on this podcast. Classic. You know, so she at the time was who's, doing Friends. The score for Masters of the Universe just came out as a great double CD. Yeah, an Bill LP, Conte right? Score maybe two. I don't know if it's. I mean, there is an original LP, but I know and. 
But there was a great scene yeah. that just came out recently. Uh, so she, you know, and she, and she's also in that Bruce Springsteen video. This uh, guns for hire, gonna standing <laughs> in the dark. Uh, can't start to fire. So she comes in and she wanted to play a bitch because she was such nice on Friends. So I think she comes in, plays a great role in this too, because you know she is like kind of a a, a cunt in this or c word. But then by the end of it, it's a, <laughs> you say it and then say the c word, and then I censor myself. Uh, but then at the end of it. It's kind of like she does have, she kind of redeems herself by saving the day, and you know, and then they become friends, and you know, so I like that, that there is like an evolution of her character. Yeah. And of course, this is where she and David Arquette met, and they're no longer together. No, but then he's, he's wrestling more. now, if people know what he's doing, he's actually like doing some pro wrestling, I don't know if it's like Which jokey stuff. Which he got stuff. into because he did Ready to Rumble, yeah. maybe, a movie with James Conn's kid and Oliver Platt back in the day. And now he's actually doing stuff like, and uh, so, you know, he's good in it. We already mentioned uh, Henry Winkler, who, if people don't know, was also the executive producer of MacGyver in the 80s. And uh, I believe he almost directed Turner and Hooch. (sighs) That's a movie I can't watch. That's at the end of that one. I remember that being... uh, Tear, a big tearjerker. And anybody other, any other honorable mentions? I think Matthew Lillard's, you know, I've always loved him. Uh, as I said, people used to uh, well, say. Well, it's also, I mean, you don't, you probably, from your perspective, you didn't realize this, but you were pretty frantic. Oh, a wacky. In yeah. Your youth. Yeah, I was, and, I still and, am. And loud. Yeah, you've so become I, I more had, subdued in your youth. I had that. Kind I mean, of, in your in your old age, you've you've, you've mellowed out. Yeah, but, but I was back very then, you were also very over loud, the top so. and hyper and all that. And I, I I very much embodied Matthew Lillard's kind of uh, uh, franticness about it and all that, you know. And then uh, he went on to do you know play uh, Shaggy in both Scooby Doo live action movies, and then he kind of got the the reins handed off to him by. Um, uh, Casey Kasem and then he, he's he been doing Scooby for Jesus almost 10 or 11 years in every carnation of the Scooby-Doo the Mystery Incorporated recently it came up because you said he, they just replaced him they replaced they? him for the for the new movie that's coming out and he learned about it on Twitter they didn't even have the you know the the, the, the respect to tell him and he's like just sucks and that's kind of that's you know uh because he's I, and he also was great there was a um the bridge which was the uh, the fx show which was off the tube maybe which was a british swedish show but they did a very good show here for two seasons with maybe diana kruger is that her name maybe uh and he was in that as a reporter and he was phenomenal in that so you know he's been doing a lot of stuff skeet Ulrich. i was thinking he was in um you know, wasn't he as good as it gets? But then I, he kind of fell off the side, face of the earth, and Nev Campbell kind of, you know, there's only a couple people who I still kind of see, like, yeah. you know, Leif Schreiber, of course, is still doing stuff. Well, you know, Nev Campbell went on to be in all the Scream movies. Yeah. But, uh, and she kind of had a baby face where she kind of didn't, you know, she, as she was getting older, you know, she looked very good, you know, didn't yeah, look like yeah. she was aging she was as much. She was just in the movie that I thoroughly enjoyed when I saw it in the theaters, which is maybe Skyscraper with The Rock. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. She plays his wife in that. Oh, that's great. You know, basically like a diehard meets Towering Inferno. Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) on my list. I mean, it really would have been a great movie to see in the movies, but it's definitely a worthwhile. It's definitely... You know, in Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers 2030, we yeah. might be looking back at Skyscraper. Yeah, why not? <laughs> and, you know, and also I noticed, too, that Jamie Kennedy, uh, his uh, shirt he's wearing at the party scene, Fresh Drive, that was a big, uh, I think it was a skateboarding company in, the, in my high school. And a lot of my friends, my friend Chris wore a Fresh Drive hat because he lived in that hat. My friends called him Fresh Drive. So Fresh Drive was a big uh 
uh, company at the time. And then also he does a Jerry Lewis impression. Yeah. You know, it, which it was just for most people yeah, wouldn't understand. <laughs> exactly. I don't you know, I don't even know if people understood it at the time when it came out. But uh it, you know, it's 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 funny now that he does that, you know, that maybe that was what got Wes Craven laughing. He's like, oh, okay, we'll cast him. You know, I certainly don't want to end this movie on this on this podcast on this note, but I do think it's worth mentioning that it's a very it's a very weird thing that this that Sidney Prescott's mom is a slut. Like, I know. <laughs> it's weird. And I recognized her, and I didn't do the research to see who the actress in the pictures are. I feel like she's been in other things. But then to have the actual, the, yeah, the, the divulging is that she was sleeping around on the husband with multiple people, as well as Skeet Ulrich's father. Yeah, there was, a, there was talk about how there was two camps about, like, whether they, there shouldn't be motivation for the kids to do to be murderers. And then others saying we need a reason. And so they kind of... Kevin Williamson kind of went down the middle and said, "Okay, well, like Skeet Ulrich has a motivation, but which is his dad, the dad, which stuff. is that the dad was sleeping with Sidney's mom, and that's what caused his his parents' divorce, and that Matthew Lillard's character doesn't really have a motivation other yeah. than peer pressure. Which yeah. there's a couple of things. I mean, I think you know, especially for our generation, there's a you know the beginning with the opening scene with the boyfriend taped to the chair. There's certainly you know, I almost turned to you and be like, Marvin Nash. <laughs> Marvin, Marvin Nash. <laughs> I met you about two weeks ago. And then, um, and then at the end when he's when Matthew Lillard's dying, he's like, man, you cut me too deep, I'll tell man. you, his- Peer uh, pressure. They said a lot of his stuff was ad-libbed, and near the end of it, his performance in the house, all that stuff, I was still, I mean, he's so overboard, it's like, it's almost like the spittle's coming out, yeah, I was enjoying yeah. it, but his stuff, I was actually laughing out loud, the stuff where he's like, I really heard my parents <laughs> are gonna be pissed, like all that was very yeah, funny, yeah. I found all that, uh, you know, I mean, I- I loved his performance growing up, and I used to remember all that kind of like, you know, I got a little too overzealous, or it's question, if you don't get it wrong, buga, you die, like all that stuff. And, yeah, yeah. You know, certainly I embodied him as a as Anyway. A um, so uh, let's see. Check us out all over the place. Uh, we hope you like what we've been doing. You can check us out on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You can check the podcast out uh, wherever you get your podcast from. We're on iTunes and stuff like that. We have our regular site, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. But we post extras in every posting, so we'll throw a little extras into this thing. Uh, Blake, what do you got going on? Uh, score to Death, at Score to Death on social media. The book, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. Score to Death, the podcast. Also, the podcast cuts called uh, "Cuts from the Sc- Cuts from the Crypt," and uh, I'm not—I don't know when this is dropping, but you might still be able to vote for "Score to Death" the podcast for a Rondo Award. Uh, so please look Rondo. on please look on social media on how to do that. I yeah. think it's category number twenty for best multimedia site. It's kind of a complicated uh, voting process, but it would really mean a lot to me to be able to share a Rondo Award every time. I will make sure I bring it to Dion's house every yeah, time. Yeah, just leave it there and say, this is what you don't have. <laughs> be like, this is ours, <laughs> Dion, a little Rondo head. <clears throat> and we, in the last posting, for, and, and if you go to our website on the Rear Window podcast, if you look down, we also put a link to how to go vote for that. But the voting ends April 20th, so it's probably, if this even have time for it with this one, it won't be a whole lot of time. But thank you anyway if you did vote. And then... Uh, 
let's see, I've got my book, uh, Blood in the Streets, which is out. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's paperback, uh, ebook, and audiobook if you like 70s crime, cop dramas. It's a little thriller, police thriller. Check that out, please. And uh, we got a lot of excitement uh, geared up for the coming weeks. We've been scheduling. Yeah. One hell of a summer, yeah, people. I mean, you think what we've been doing here has been big. Well, it's not big enough. We're going huge. And we're going to make an announcement in the coming weeks what we're doing, but, uh, you know, or, or the coming episodes. But uh, we think everyone's going to be excited as much as we are about it. So uh, if you're not, screw you, because we are. Yeah, we're excited. So keep your ears peeled, and uh, we, we're going to have some fun coming up. So we'll see you real soon. Later. Later.